And so we ask ourselves, will our actions echo across the centuries? Yeah, we're just going for it. Graham Nolan, welcome back. How's the homestead, buddy? Uh, actually, recently it's been a little rough, but uh, just pushing through it, you know? What's uh, What's been going on? Uh, recently, I had a property I had purchased in another state, uh, West Virginia, which is right across the river from where I live. And a uh, previous owner had already sold logging rights to it, so <laughs> I had to deal with that shit. Damn. <laughs> he was, he was double-dipping. Yeah. Yep. Oh, that's Lost fun. Lost a pickup truck to it, too, because they decided to fell a tree on top of it. You know, Jeez. I think I've uh, been through this exact scenario in a uh, forest operations and harvest class. Uh, you know, it's great. Just great. That doesn't sound like fun. So, wait, wait. It destroyed a pickup truck? Yeah, so I had it uh, parked in the woods, and I was uh, actually hunting back in January. And they had decided to, uh, I guess, go through and mark trees down. Well, they had actually had a skid steer with them, and they were chopping down trees to cut a trail to get through the main run of the logging area. And they chopped this tree, and it had come down a ridge. My truck was parked at the bottom of it, and it came right down on the cab of the truck. Luckily, I wasn't in it. So I lost a good pickup truck. Yeah, but thanks be to God, you didn't lose your life. Yeah, no. Damn, that does sound rough. But yep. All in all, uh, you know, like uh, like Nutria said, you're you're still here, and uh, you know, you get you'll get through it. But um, yeah, I appreciate you coming back on. I think that honestly, your the episode that you were on before has gotten like some of the most positive feedback. Like so many people wanted wanted you back on. Um, but obviously, like you're busy, and 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 I'm busy and stuff. But I'm glad that you were able to come back and join us yeah glad to be back especially considering that you have uh, a lot of questions and answers prepared for this yeah we've got a lot of them and so, the most uh, experience in this area so you know yeah yeah that too that's the other thing is that i still don't have really any <laughs> I, got, I got i got a little uh a very a very modest small garden um for like herbs but yeah it's i don't know it's one of those things where like you know you want to start and then uh and then it's it gets warm out to where you can start working on stuff outside a little bit easier and the next thing you know it's uh you know easter and in memorial day and stuff and you're like oh well it's already getting too late to do this i guess i'll do it next year and so then i guess i guess like the summer before that you want to start planning, you got to start prepping everything. Yep. Yep. It's all about preparation and knowing certain times and dates when it comes to, uh, especially crops. That's one of the main ones. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I remember that, um, cause I used to work at Lowe's in like the garden department, like the nursery. And, um, I just, the only thing that I really remember is that there's for fertilizing your grass, there's like four, four stages you're supposed to do and you're supposed to follow like the major holidays like Easter, Memorial Day, 4th of July, Labor Day. So I would imagine that oh, like yeah. crop planting follows kind of that same yeah, scheme. Um, for at least for around 
around here because uh, in Australia it's different because different hemisphere. Uh, the locals around here have uh, all agreed that the frost should stop by Mother's Day, and that by Mother's Day you should already be putting plants in the ground. That's kind of like a locally agreed thing in my area. Yeah. Yeah, I know that this year we got a couple late frosts because a couple of friends of mine that got their gardens together a lot uh, better than I did. They, like, you know, set up their their beds and everything and then got some crops going and and got some sprouts and everything. And everything was going good. And then there was a frost warning. So they, like, ran out and covered up all the crops with plastic and all the plants at least and and all that stuff. And they were all, uh, you know, worried that they're – all their plants are just going to die. Yep. And see, that's that's what the benefit of uh, the greenhouse is. The greenhouse will keep that from uh, being a problem. Yeah. Yeah. We we have like a little, I think it's from Aldi. I think uh, I think my wife got it from Aldi, but we got like a little, uh, like a little greenhouse kit. It's basically just a couple shelves um, that you, it's like a stand with shelves that, you, you know, you put plants on or like a, you know, pots and then it's got like a greenhouse enclosure thing around it. So you can, I could basically put it on my back deck pretty easily because we have a little, uh, a little thing with, um, last year we did, uh, cilantro and basil. And then this year we got, uh, basil and, uh, dill. And then, um, we're going to plant some cilantro and another planter. Cause I mean, the thing with, with stuff like that too, like your herbs is that they kind of just, it, it, you can kind of plant them whenever, as long as it's warm out and they'll sprout pretty quickly yeah plus another thing with herbs is they don't really have a, a long duration before they're ready to harvest and exactly yeah that's a, that's so you get a constant too. supply of it yeah i mean even, even if you know right after we're done talking here i go outside and plant cilantro like i'll probably start having a couple of uh uh you know usable sprouts like mid next month yeah so but yeah, man, if you want to start rolling into the, uh, the questions and answers or, you know, whatever, you can you can fully lead this thing. I'm cool with it. All right. So, I mean, uh, the main, the largest question I've had asked, uh, that was the main question, had about uh, 30 people asked this, about 31 people asked this question, was uh, when they buy a lot of property, how do you avoid property taxes? You know, everybody wants to get away from the tax man. The IRS is not your friend. And uh, most states in the United States have a uh, some sort of tax credit for the homestead tax. Um, everyone usually has some sort of Homestead Act tax credit. And the Homestead Act's been around uh, since 1867. You can take full advantage of it in most states. Um, I'm sure there's probably some out there who've gotten rid of it. But, you know, check your local laws. My state has a Homestead Act tax credit. And basically, most states follow the same principles where if you the less public utilities you use... So if you don't use power coming off of a pole, if you don't use uh, city water, you don't use gas for heat, things like that, the less utilities you use, the less money they charge you in property taxes. So for me, my power, now that I have electricity, I've gone solar, so I don't use any type of power off of a pole. I have my own well, so I don't use water from, you know, the local, and I don't use gas for heat. I use firewood. So for me, I am 100% uh, in their eyes self-sufficient, and I get a large tax credit. I usually get about a uh, $2,000 credit. So it usually covers my entire property tax. And then you also have to go with how your property is zoned. Um, a lot of your properties you're going to be buying, 
aren't going to be zoned residential. They're probably not even going to have a house on them if you're going to buy off-grid. And uh, if you're buying in a semi-suburban area, some places have been zoned agricultural and you just don't know it yet. And when you buy it, your property tax is going to be null and void. Now, if you live in suburbia where you have your house next to your neighbor, you're going to be paying property taxes regardless. But if you're going in the off-grid route, if you're going off-grid, I highly suggest you look at your state's laws for the Homestead Act and see what the tax credits are going to be because you can really save a lot of money. When I first got into it, uh, I was estimated when I, because I didn't take a loan when I bought, I bought my property straight out. And I was estimated to be paying about $4,000 a year in property tax. Now I pay right around $219 a year. So, you know, you just got to look into the local laws and, uh, you know, you work that towards you. And uh, seriously, though, I mean, like, take advantage of that because no one wants to pay $4,000 a year. I mean, granted, most people who start a homestead won't be buying as much property as I have. But I mean, if you're buying 20 acres, you're not going to be only paying two, dollars $3,000 on that. You're going to be only paying two, $300 on that. Yeah. Yeah, that's because uh, I had heard about the Homestead Act before. Um, I just didn't know like what the minimum requirements for you to qualify for it was. Yeah, so uh, going into that more, at least for my state, I can't speak for every state. I only live in one of them. Uh, in my state, you have to have that property that you live on as your primary residence. You can't have any other residence. It has to be the only one you live on. You have to at least maintain that residence for six months before you apply. You also have to, you know, the less utilities you use, the better rate you get. But to even qualify, you have to, like I said, primary residence. You have to make sure that that is the only property you reside in for six months before you repl- uh, apply for it. And then you have to demonstrate that this is, in fact, a homestead and not just you buying property to then sell to somebody to develop it in the condominiums or apartments or a resort. Yeah. So if you buy 20 acres in the middle of the boonies, they want to make sure you're not trying to just, you know, cash out on it and turn it into um, like a, some sort of ski resort, you know? So with like a couple of garden beds and a few chickens? Uh, like- not, not even that. You don't even have to have any livestock. As long as they just see you living in the boonies to your life's fullest extent, they don't really care. Just hmm. as long as you have no uh, intentions of developing it or constructing something like multiple houses for rent, things like that. I mean, you don't even have to have plants, chickens. You could just be living there in a, in a bivouac. They don't really care. Just huh. as long as, you know, you're not sitting there trying to develop it or make additional money off of it to where the state's going to be subverted, they don't really care. If you start living that uh, Bushman lifestyle or the homesteader lifestyle, the state just sees you as not the average bear and doesn't collect taxes from you. <laughs> hey, congratulations. You're so weird. We're not going to we're not gonna tax you. We don't want your money. Exactly. We're just like, nah, we're good, Mike. <laughs> but we don't want to go into your bivy and draw and steal your money. Is, yeah. Well, they, they probably know it's all under your mattress anyway. Oh, no, mine's in the 30-foot well. You have to look in with your head, and then I grab your legs and tip you over. <laughs> the money the money softens the blow. It's like That's that funny. scene in uh, Sparta it's... where they kick him over into the hole. Same thing. This it's is Homestead a... and kick you into the hole. It's, it's just, just to like fall into your bank. $100,000 worth of pennies at the bottom. Exactly. <laughs> count them all out. You can have them if you can count them. That's right. If you don't bring you it down there for him not to mess up your savings account. <laughs> I wait till he gets done counting them all and I'll throw another one in there and make him recount. <laughs> <laughs> Start yeah, over. That's, that's the really the, the main question I had because a lot of people did ask. Uh, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, I own exactly 290 acres of land. Uh, it's a lot of land. And uh, most people were asking, you know, how many 
um, how much money was I paying for those acres? And uh, the question to be answered is not a lot, not a lot of money. And you can do the same thing as long as you read into your local laws and take advantage of them. Yeah, I think that that's kind of a thing too with, uh, you know, you, you get that a lot kind of in these circles where guys are sort of like, I'm just going to ignore the law anyway, which if you're going to do that, like I don't, I don't recommend it, but if you are going to do it, at least know the law. Like yeah, exactly. Know what you're voting. Yeah. Because there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that you can learn even like that. Like I, I had known about the homestead credit, but I just had assumed that it was, you know, you had to have proof that it was an actual homestead. Like you were able to subside off of it for, you know, whatever. Um, and so I just never read into the laws, but if I'd read into the law, like you had said, then I'd find out, you know, potentially in my state, like, Hey, as long as I just live here, I get a homestead credit. Yeah. Um, like in my state, for example, the more self-sufficient you are and they don't really care about your food, as long as you're not using their utilities, they just go, okay, well, this guy doesn't use anything. So let him fend for himself. In, so uh, if you had like solar and rainwater collection, you'd be, you'd be fine. Cause yeah, that's, yeah. that's the other thing too, is I know that at least in my state, if you're on city water, um, which even the small cities here have, have water, like I'm in a pretty small town. Um, and we still have, you know, city water technically uh you can't have a well like it's efficiently illegal to to dig a well if you're on the city water yeah so, yeah same in my state too and you can't have a septic tank either. what's yeah, that you can't have a septic system either if you're on city water they won't allow you to dig one you're also not supposed to collect rainwater if you're on city water uh, i didn't know that depends on the state obviously but yeah that's just big water for you drink more alcohol boys <laughs> drink more fluoride. <laughs> I drank 17 beers before this started. I'll let you know right now. I'm on my third point of Foster's as we're talking. <sighs> we don't have Foster's here. Nobody sells it. I guess you'll have I that. I get my uh, local liquor store to actually bring it in. It's in a nice one-point green can. That'd be <laughs> nice. The bar I used to work at back in the day, they sold Foster's in the big blue can. So Yeah, the lager. Yeah, I drink the yeah. premium. Oh, I spend all the you. money. Yeah, you must. Yeah, well, all that money you saved on not paying property tax, you can put into beer. Yeah, exactly. You just go down with a, with a little bucket and scoop out some pennies, and you go to your local liquor store. <laughs> yeah, Slap and, the bucket on the counter. <laughs> Give me exactly. the green pint. <laughs> and if you guys remember that war that started in Angola on June seventeenth at exactly eight o'clock in the morning, that was uh, not funded by me. Just saying. <laughs> it was. It wasn't you at all. No, it, was, it must nah. have been somebody else. No. No, I just live in the woods. What do I know? That's right. You don't have anything to do with anything. Yeah. You don't even have Big Water's fault. It's Big Water. It's all Big Water's fault. Always is. (laughs) It's always Big Water's fault. Every time we get a drought, it's Big Water. They're holding back on us just like the Saudis with the oil. That's right. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's like the... um, When they control the stock, like manipulate the the supply, so that way the demand goes up. Oh, yeah. All the time. That's that's another good thing about homesteading is you don't have to worry about supply chains. You are your own supply chain. Yeah, so uh, my uh, house, which is where, you know, the house I'm going to spend the first few years of my marriage in until we can build 
um, either way, whenever my, whenever we get married, my fiance is going to move in with me and, or I guess she'll be my wife at that time, but you know, she'll move in with me and then we'll, uh, kind of start off, but we're actually on her family's land. They have a cattle farm, about a thousand acres and most of it, they just run cattle on. Uh, it's just prairie, you know, it's not the best soil, uh, cause our parent material here is like a, it, it's a chalk cause it's coastal plain soils down in Mississippi, whatever. Yeah. I mean, there might be someone who's uh, a geology nerd, but, uh, so it's not the best for just growing things, but it's great for cattle, great for grazing because it grows grass really well and it grows it fast. So they have, you know, a few hundred cattle. Uh, I am the first house. This house is, uh, it's got maybe a, an acre lot. So I'm just going to be raising birds, uh, for the time being, probably start off with quail because, um, I'm not. I'm still working like in town right now. I'm working at the university. So I'm going to, uh, I'm over here right now and, uh, slowly moving stuff into that, that place. But either way, um, it's, uh, what I'm going to do. Yeah. Start out with quail, make a little, uh, quail pen, which I could probably have like a hundred quail in there. No problem. The size I'm thinking of. And if y'all, I'm sure y'all know about how, easy it is to, uh, to raise quail and how they are, you know, fully grown in eight weeks. So, you know, hatch or hatching to fully grown, ready to, to kill or, you know, ready to start laying eggs, uh, at eight weeks. It's pretty fast, pretty fast turnaround. So that's the initial plan. Then we're thinking about, we've talked about this. She and I have, uh, goats and, um, then from there, I've actually talked to her dad about sheep because, you know, that'd be fun. Also, it'd be fun to be able to uh, make wool. Make wool. Yeah, exactly. That's literally the reason. Um, Because you talk about having your own supply chain. Um, Think about, you know, a few years down the line, what are we going to do about clothes? You know, I'm all about mending old clothes. Like I, um, my fiance likes sewing. So recently she just mended, you know, patched up a shirt of mine that I've had for numerous years, which is great. But at the same time, if we can't buy new clothes and stuff, at least not for, for a reasonable price, then what are we going to do? You know, exactly. Learn how I mean, to make your own fact, stuff. Yeah. When I was on the old birthday suit and go to work. Yeah. yeah. When I was a, uh, growing up in Tasmania on a cattle farm, they had a sheep as well. I was actually a drover growing up. And uh, a lot of my uh, sweaters and stuff was all wool in the wintertime. That my mother would make with the wool that we get from the, uh, well, I guess you'd say the head uh, farmer. And he let us have a little bit, and we'd make it in the clothing. Once you get past the itch, it's all right. Yeah, I actually most of what I wear in the cooler months is wool, because it uh, yeah. it's not super cold here, but it rains all the time. So and it's got good moisture wicking and uh, absorption ex- abilities to keep exactly. you dry. I can just go out in a in a wool sweater and like a pair of jeans, and that's uh, you know, good enough for the winter time here if I'm moving at least, and uh, it keeps me dry. So. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, I just got, uh, I just picked up an, like an OD green merino wool shirt and then a couple of pairs of socks for, uh, for this summer. I'm going to try to just run, uh, merino wool uh, when I go to the field. So I will, uh, I'll report back on that. Cause that, that's something that I figured out when I, uh, get it, like started getting into like backpacking stuff before the gun thing, um, was that obviously merino wool is kind of like your the greatest material ever like it 
regulate your body temperature in the winter and summer, wicks away moisture, antimicrobial, like doesn't doesn't stink. Yeah, yeah. It's, so. uh, I I actually sleep under wool blankets. That's all I do. I don't I don't have like I have like a comforter kind of thing, but I just sleep on top of it underneath wool blankets, and you know, that's kept me warm even when we had like a nine degree freeze and I had a broken window in my house. So, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, I know nine degrees doesn't sound like anything compared to, to you, Mr. Uh, Great Lakes region, but no, dude, nine degrees is still cold. <laughs> oh yeah. Down here, especially it's, we're not used to that. It was cold. Yeah. No, not nine degrees is kind of like, I'm pretty sure that's like the average January temperature here, but, uh, no, trust me. When I go outside, it's nine degrees out. Like, I'm cold. <laughs> Actually got to break oh, yeah. out my, my wool anorak. Uh, when I was, uh, when it got down to nine, nine degrees and I was running around outside in that. And that was fun. It was a fun time. Yeah. yeah. Always is. So, I mean, uh, major things. Graham, did you get any questions about sheep and sheep or wool in your, uh, 170? Oh, I actually did. Uh, let me see if oh, I can find I wrote it down here somewhere. It was something about, uh, animals. I said I can find so I can put my cheetahs on and find this shit. Uh, here it is. So uh, one of the, uh, about 17 people asked this question, what livestock should you keep and raise on the homestead and which ones should you not? So, uh, and I also got questions asking which ones I raise. So I guess I'll knock that one out first. So on my homestead, I raise chickens, ducks, quail, uh, a couple small pets that my wife has uh, kept, like Cornish hens and things like that we raise. I raise goats both a uh, dairy goat and a meat goat and hens i raise a laying hen and a meat hen and that's one thing you should realize when you get into chickens is that there's mainly two types of birds one that's generated for laying eggs and one that's generated for meat uh, typically you should keep around the one that lays the eggs and eat the one that's the meat chicken because for one you'll get more meat out of it and for two the meat chicken is not going to lay as many eggs so you might want to have you know a little bit of each and just keep them separate from each other um, I raise the, like I said, the goats, the meat and dairy goats, and I keep a couple aside for breeding because, you know, you can't just keep going out and buying animals. It's not, it's not, uh, financially secure to just keep out going, buying animals. Uh, I would say for a homestead, unless, you know, you have like Nutria here, a uh, cattle farm, I wouldn't recommend raising cow. They, uh, usually the rule is, at least when I was in Tasmania, it's one acre to one cow. So, you know. It's a lot of land developed for uh, one cow. You could raise pigs and hogs if you wanted to. I've never been a big fan of them. They always stink and just never been a big fan of raising them. But that's something you could get into. Uh, personally, my recommendations are you raise a meat chicken. If you want to you know, sustain yourself off of your livestock, I would raise both a layer chicken and a meat chicken. You can just raise one type of quail. You can eat them and lay them the same amount of eggs. Uh, if you want to get into goats, it depends if you just want the milk. Or you want the uh, meat, you should raise both a dairy and a meat goat. If you just want the dairy, just raise a regular dairy mm. goat. And then if you want to raise anything for wool, personally, I haven't gotten into sheep yet. It's something I want to do, just haven't gotten into it yet. Uh, you can raise sheep. And uh, certain breeds are you know, more developed and inclined to giving wool. Uh, some people want to raise alpaca. I have no uh, inclination to their mm. well-being. I have never taken care of one. So, I just know uh, they have long, long necks. That's it. That's all yeah. I know. Yeah, basically, like a little pocket giraffe. 
So you yeah. haven't started your uh, invasive species kangaroo thing uh, yet? Believe it or not. Believe it or not. And call me crazy. To my wife, when we first got married, she wanted a kangaroo as a pet. She was very serious about this. So I figured it's probably banned. Beings in America, they ban certain things and don't ban other things. So I looked into it, and you could apply for a license. And I have actually put on order a, a male and a female red kangaroo. Uh, it was a little pricey, not going to lie. But I have actually put on order a male and female red kangaroo. And she'll be expecting them within three to seven weeks. From a, uh, actually they're raised, these two are raised in Missouri. And I should see them in three to seven weeks. Well, I'll have to drive out there to pick them up, but they'll be ready in three to seven weeks to where they can be given away. Damn. They'll be vaccinated, inoculated, and, uh, you know, they'll be off the teat, ready to go. You should swing on down here to Mississippi. Say hi. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> Only uh, an extra six hours. And I did get a couple of joke questions. Uh, people asked about raising emus, and I'm going to tell you right now, you raise them with a rifle, and that's about it. So <laughs> you raise them, and then that's, you drop them back down. That's what I thought about kangaroos, too. I have a buddy who, uh, who he, he ended up moving by me, and he lived in Australia beforehand, and he said that kangaroos are just like a huge pest over there. And that uh, yeah, they're, uh, everyone just pretty much shoots them. Uh, yeah, uh, we have at least... Now, like I said, I didn't live in mainland growing up. I lived in Tasmania. But there was a lot of... Uh, we have a, a donkey population that is actually wild. I don't know if anyone <laughs> knows this. They're, they're actually... They thrive wildly. They're like a fair... They're, we, we always call them a wild ass, a jackass is what you call them. But think of them in terms of feral donkey, I guess you could say. We have feral goats. Goats that have just, you know, over the years of people just having ranches and large farms and they just get out wild and no one retrieves them because back in the days of colonization you know they go to south wales and go buy property all over australia and tasmania and they'd give two three thousand acres to one man and you know he loses animals he's not going to go after them he's going to buy more so these animals get loose and they breed and now we have uh, feral goats and of course we have the, the dingo feral dog and we've got the feral donkeys too but I uh, definitely uh, no emus. I mean, I'm being uh, personally emus. Uh, they're a pain in the ass. Um, they can cause more harm to you than you can think, and they don't taste good. So you might as well just shoot them and bury them in a six foot hole or incinerate them. Your choice. I had a, I had a good bit of ostrich <laughs> in my life, but I know not the same thing. Yeah. Ah, uh, another animal too. Um, if you're serious about horses and pack animals, I also have a. Uh, a mule. Uh, I actually got it from a local. He's uh, up in age, so he couldn't take care of it anymore, so I got it from him. And uh, here in a little bit, I'm going to start raising rabbits. It's going to be another thing I'm going to raise. And, uh, you know, you, on the homestead, you want to diversify your livestock. That way you have, if, if you have to kill them for food, you have a large quantity of it. You're not just going to, you know, kill what you have and have nothing left. Uh, and another thing, too, is uh, I guess this ties into it. And another question is asked about hunting and fishing, and that should be living on a homestead if you live off grid or even have a couple acres with some woods. Try and supplement your game with in your hunting seasons in your states. Try and supplement your your food with uh, wild game, whether it be a deer or a turkey, whatever you have in your area. Fish, you know, try and supplement with that too. Don't just go killing off your livestock. Take from the nature too. That's what it's there for. Yeah. 
lot of lot of deer here, a lot of deer hunting, and uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it, deer is great, but I mean that. Speaking of, I guess on the topic of large game, that does bring up a point uh, with with deer and uh, cattle as well. Anything bigger, that's a you'll have a lot of meat, and you need to have a way to store that. And as we know, I mean, with you with solar, uh, you definitely probably are better off in a in a grid down scenario. But for people who are on electricity. You need to uh, be able to preserve your food without just refrigeration. You yes, know, and that's definitely. something I've been looking into a lot, like smoking and uh, salt curing and everything. But it's not nothing I've actually experimented with yet. So I do have a smoker, though. So I saw a video yeah. where some guys in either like Detroit or Baltimore, or Chicago, or something, a bunch of really swell gentlemen. They uh they took like a filing cabinet and they cut it out to make it a smoker. Like like and one of those real tall office filing cabinets, like five drawers. I think that they cut out the way that the drawers were, and they put like the the meat all the way in the top, and then the fire on the bottom. Or I don't know. They had some funny uh, some funny get up. But you know, speaking about large game, did anybody else? I just my buddy just texted me this, but did anybody else know that uh, salting your watermelon makes it taste better? Oh uh, yeah, in uh few locals he actually put pepper on it too that and cantaloupe they actually put pepper on it hmm. they say it tastes makes it taste better i don't like cantaloupe um no maybe if yeah. you salted it no i just i'll try it i guess i i'm going to my uh my family's house this weekend for father's day i guess if there's a fruit salad or some cantaloupe i'll put a little bit of salt on there and give her give her a whirl but yeah i didn't realize that that wasn't like a well-known thing uh, yes. about salting your watermelon makes it taste better so uh you you know uh, how in the Gospels, Christ says you're the salt of the earth? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, there's a reason for that. Uh, a few reasons. You know, salt is great. It's good, whatever. But it actually brings out natural flavors in things. When uh, yep. Traditionally, when you talk about people seasoning food, they're just putting salt on it. That's seasoning it. So you're like, salting food, it helps bring out the natural flavors and everything. And actually, a lot of times, will leach out the tannins. So that they're more kind of present and easier to, to taste, and so in this in the same way, you know, like Christ is obviously referring to people as like, okay, you're you're bringing out the goodness in the world, whatever. But for us, for our intensive purposes right now, uh, you salt your watermelon, you bring out the good flavors in the watermelon. Personally, I'm not huge on watermelon, you know, uh, even though I'm from the south. Maybe I just don't fit the demographic. I don't know. But uh, oh, dude, watermelon is good. I don't even care. Frozen watermelon. Yeah, I've had that. That's pretty good. But yeah, that's right good too. Eat that with a spoon. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, the um, the thing with salt that's funny is that that was uh, there was actually that that video recently that went around where that girl was uh talking about how people were because she has like a cooking show online or whatever. It was like TikTok or whatever. I don't have TikTok, but uh, and people were telling her that she doesn't season her food, but she was explaining that like when you buy off the shelf seasoning, it has like garlic powder and onion powder and stuff and it's like i'm she was basically like i'm using the things that these are from like garlic powder the ingredient is garlic right onion powder the ingredient is onion like that's in the recipe and then i already actually knew this i'm I'm not like a cook by any means um the first time i had ever baked anything was when you gave your your bread recipe that i made but uh um, the lembus bread yeah, I made that and it was pretty good. But I, I promised my wife I was going to try to attempt to make some cookies too. 
um, to see if those turn out to be any good or if those are uh, unedible. But um, yeah, that I actually knew that the uh, when people say like this food needs more seasoning, it means that basically like you need to put more salt on it because like you said, salt brings out the natural flavors. I think too that with the watermelon, there's something about the moisture or something else in it. Like, cause salt obviously messes with moisture. Like if you go to the bar and you throw some salt on your, uh, your napkin, then your beer glass won't stick to it. Yeah. I've never been to a bar in my life. I wouldn't know anything really? about drinking. No, I'm, I'm, I'm being sarcastic. Sorry. Oh, uh, I I figured you'd be the guy that's like, because I knew that you drank, obviously, but I figured you'd be the guy that's like, yeah, I've never been to a bar. I just drink with my friends. Um, I, I guess I've been to a, uh, a few bars, but most of the bars around here, it's unfortunate. They're like uh, full of like queers and trannies. So, you know, there's, there's <laughs> this one that I, I went to years ago for my 21st birthday uh, and that um, I was not a great experience because they had like a gay flag there and everything. And I was like, all right, I'm never going back there. Now they do drag shows. So, you know, specifically so last you're night, you're telling me that you don't have a lot of pride. Uh, no, no, I don't, <laughs> I don't like queers. <laughs> not too far. Actually, this, this, this reminds me of a, of a quick, uh, of a quick ad, administrative, uh, point I need to interject, but, um, yeah, so I was uploading all the podcast episodes to Spreaker, and then through Spreaker, I would I would have the the podcast go to Spotify and stuff. Essentially, it's it's through what's called an RSS link, which you can take the RSS link and put it in any sort of other like podcast hosting service, and it'll automatically, you know, when I upload a a podcast to Spreaker, it would automatically go to Spotify. Anyway, Spreaker banned us. Um, was that for and making fun I, of gays or no? I think that because I had put in for ad revenue, um, and it was approved, and then the ad revenue got blocked, and they said that there was basically too many listens from one IP address, and so it sorry, automatically that was, gets that was me. Sorry. Well, they they I think that they thought it was like a bot, which I'm pretty sure it was just because damn near all of the listens are from spotify so i would imagine that it probably has to go through like a spotify server to redirect so i figure that that's probably what the case is i don't know um but they they took down all the episodes the episodes are still on spotify because like spotify just hasn't updated yet um but anyway what my my point is going to be before we continue is that the uh I went through and I saved the uh, descriptions for a handful of the old episodes. Um, the majority of the episode, I'm keeping all the episodes past um, like the beginning of 2022 when, when, uh, when Geo and myself were the two became the two main guys. Um, the older episodes before that, I'm going to keep a handful, but um, I basically, I need to go onto a broken hard drive and it's really slow and very, uh, a very big pain in the ass to work with. So I need to get all the audio files off of that and then start uploading to the new hosting service. All of the old episodes, like every episode that we've made, um, I'm going to put into a dump on the Patreon, but for the most part for, for, um, you know, any, anybody that goes on the Spotify, they're not going to see a lot of the older episodes because, uh, and let's be honest, they're just not good. But, um, 
plus there's a lot of topics that I want to rehit because they're uh they weren't good when we did it originally. But I thought yeah, the so, Catholicism episodes were good. Yeah, those are good. Those are staying on. Those those are fairly recent. Um but yeah, they uh I already have like a list of the episodes I'm keeping for Spotify and stuff. Um, obviously this episode will be on there. Every, everything that is made is on there. But the reason I'm bringing that up is because once I upload this episode, um, I'll have to upload it to a new service and relink the RSS feed, which will then take out all of the old episodes unless I also upload all of those ones at the same same time. So uh, I got a bit of work ahead of me, especially considering the fact that that drive is on its last leg and takes forever to do anything. Um, but I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there for everyone as the heads up, because at first when I figured out that the podcast was banned, I thought it was because of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg joke I made last episode, but, uh, I don't think that it was anyway, uh, back to you, Graham. All right. So I guess we can, uh, we'll move <laughs> on to a, uh, another question here. And, uh, just for the folks at home, uh, homesteading episode one was a smash hit better than Marvel's any of their movies. Just saying, so true. I am good quality content boys. Correct. Um, so the next, another big question was uh, people talking about, so going, this is for an off-grid only question. doesn't really apply it if you live in suburbia or in a area with a shelter already on it, a house. So people asked if they buy a property that has no established shelter on it, what is the best way to go about it? Uh, a lot of questions were about buying a prefab home or building your own. People asked oh, about sourcing natural lumber from the property or just buying it at a lumber mill or any type of lumber yard. And... Uh, to be honest with you guys, it's probably best to build your own. It's going to be cheaper. I mean, uh, let's be honest with you guys. When I built mine, now granted, mine wasn't, my house is not all, and the, the pictures are on Instagram. You can see it on the uh, the longhouse page. My house was built out of two recycled barns. I had recycled materials that was good, that were good that I could reuse. I took that out of a barn, and then I had actually taken lumber, and stripped the trees of their bark, and I charred it so it could sit on the ground as a foundation, and I put a lot of the interior lumber was all taken off the property, exteriors from the barns, and, uh, you know, it's always going to be cheaper to build it yourself, and it's going to be cheaper to uh, take it from nature, because you already own the property. As long as you can process the wood, you can do it with it as you please. Buying lumber, yeah, you might get it pressure treated, it's going to last you 50 years, but, uh, you know, you have to look at it this way. There's cabins around my area that have been around since before the American Civil War. And they still stand. Granted, no one lives in them. And they could use some repairs. But uh, they still stand. You could still shelter in them if need be. And they were built in the 1850s, 1840s. And they're still here to this day. And uh, you just got to go into it. And it's going to tie in the next thing. You're going to need tools to do this. And uh, you're going to have to wonder how big of a house you want to build. Um... Because if you build a large house, you're going to need to cut large pieces of lumber. And especially if you're building with living wood, you have to use whole sections of a tree. So if you're out there by yourself, um, you're going to encounter a few problems with building a large home, such as you moving large pieces of wood the higher you go with your walls and then your roof. And unless you want to be, you know, uh, dwelling on a major hernia, uh, you definitely need to either find out some sort of pulley system or get somebody to help you if you're by yourself doing one of these homes. Um, prefab, if you have no confidence in yourself um be prepared to if it's even a kit i mean there's there's a local company uh not in my state but in west virginia but my other property i own they sell a prefab home it is uh, about fifty thousand dollars starting out 
and they range all up to about three hundred thousand dollars, and you still have to put it together. So I'm sure I haven't really looked in the prefab homes myself, but I'm sure it's going to probably cost you around three hundred thousand dollars for a, a good one, and probably about a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars for a small one. So it's going to be in your best interest to build it yourself. Um, and if you don't have confidence in yourself, build up some confidence. You know, uh, I mean, back in the day, that's what people had to do. They carried a rifle on their shoulder. They went out into the wilderness and they built their home. And uh, that's how America started. You know, American frontiersmen was the same way. You go out and build your own cabin. Indeed. And uh, that's what I went and did. And I'll highly recommend that you go out, use the materials on your property. It is yours. You use it. You're going to save a lot of money. And uh, I think it's best that you DIY your home. Uh, the next question ties into this. They asked, uh, what building materials should you use? That will last the longest and give you the lowest maintenance. Uh, and this is a this, can, this one applies Fetch. to uh, even the people for uh, suburban homes. Shingles, uh, in my opinion, are uh, one of the stupidest things that people have gone to on their homes, uh, especially that the, the you know the asphalt shingles, the tarmac shingles. It's one of the dumbest things because if not put on right, simple gust of wind can blow it off and they rot your roof out, and they have to change them about every ten years. And uh, you know, I've, I've seen people claim to have a shingle that lasts 50 years when I was back home in Australia. And uh, I don't believe it, personally. I, they go bad too frequently. And if you want to keep climbing up on a roof for the rest of your life and replacing pieces of shingle, go ahead. But in my opinion, the best lasting roof is tin. A tin roof. A metal roof. It will last you the life of your building. Your building will fall out and the tin roof will still be there. Uh, if you get the right tin, it's not going to rust. If you paint it, it's even better. But it's not going to rust. You're not going to get rust holes in. It's not like it's steel. It's tin. Uh, and homes in Australia, ever since about the 1840s, have been using tin roofs. Um, and I, I personally, I like tin. Uh, you can use cedar shakes. Living wood shakes actually last longer if taken care of correctly than most uh, shingles put on poorly put on houses. And uh, in the end of the day, tin, I mean, you can buy bulk amounts of tin. You can use it for your roof. You can use it to build a shed. You can use it to build some sort of shelter, canopy, whatever you need to do, some sort of covering, some sort of area that needs to be covered from the elements. And uh, personally, I recommend tin does have drawbacks, such as if it's in the wintertime and you have to clean the snow off your roof, that way it doesn't put too much weight on it. Uh, it's going to be a little slick. And uh, tin roofs do tend to get draw more heat in because they are metal. But uh, other than that, I mean, personally, there's so many uh, drawbacks to shingles that the few drawbacks to tin just override it. And I'll highly recommend if you want a roof that's going to be less maintenance and more you living in the home and worrying about other things, I would go with tin. Um, another thing, if you're going to be building with living wood, I highly recommend woods like poplar, willow, and cedar. They, all three of them, have uh, natural uh, properties that keep Bug insects out. Yeah, so you don't want termites. Termites is the, that's the you know they'll rot your house out so fast. Um, Cedar wood, willow wood, poplar wood. You know, also, interior of the house, you could use pine, any type of hardwood. But on the outside, I highly recommend using poplar, cedar, <clears> or willow. It keeps the bogs out, and you're going to have a longer-lasting home. Also, for people in the south or closer to the coasts, um, bald cypress or osage, osage orange, yeah. bodock, hedge, whatever you want to call it, uh, both are also very similar, extremely uh, resistant to the elements. In fact, you go down, um, I grew up going down to Florida visiting my, uh, my dad's family. I'm sorry. What? 
you said you grew up going down to Florida. I said, I'm sorry. Oh yeah. Terrible place. Except for grandpa's house. That was cool. But, uh, you know, you the have safe haven in Florida. <laughs> exactly. Safe house. Um, you have old like homesteads that are 200 years old, made entirely out of Cypress. And they, the only thing that Cypress does is it oxidizes and it turns black. That's it. It's basically, it's like a patina, you know, on a knife and like a carbon steel blade or something like that. You know, it's going to, prevent um rotting and corrosion things like that and keeps bugs away it's really great and also here you know we have since we're out in the prairie um there's osage that grow everywhere now that we use it mostly for fence posts because it doesn't grow with the best form factor but you could cut it up into smaller pieces and use it as like uh shingles for sure yeah a lot of people like to use uh cedar for decks and fences and even closets like internal like interior closets because the uh the cedar won't basically like the bugs don't like to hang out in there so bugs won't get in your clothes and then for your deck and for your uh for your fence um essentially long term it's kind of like the metal roof where like um you know compared to shingles a metal roof costs more but you don't need to replace it in 10 to 20 years you have it as long as the building is still standing so um same thing with cedar like your initial cost is going to be more expensive for a fence than if you had you know normal like a like a pine fence um your your cedar for like a deck is going to be a kind of a similar cost to if you use um like uh like composite decking materials like the artificial deck shit that looks like wood and um but it's going to be lighter and then you're not going to have bugs like you would with uh with a normal deck and you know paint it, it's not going to rot away or anything like that so yeah cedars is uh and you know all those other woods that have those properties are extremely useful that's that's one thing too is like uh i started reading a while back i had gotten uh one of the dave canterbury uh i think it was like the advanced bushcraft book because i was kind of already like past the basic because you're autistic yeah yeah exactly but um it has some it has a couple of things on uh um like identifying your natural you know trees and plants and stuff like that wild edibles um which i've never been good with but one thing that i know from that is that uh there's actually two two main types of oak trees you have your red oak and your white oak and your white oak is generally more medicinal and uh and like what kind of natures you can get from or like it's more medicinal in nature from like what kind of things you can get from that tree um like with the bark and the leaves and and everything and um and then red oak is more for building and i guess that the old symbol for uh before like the red cross and and all these like medical symbols the old symbol for medicine used to be a white oak leaf that's um a pretty broad statement because there's like a million types of uh, oaks in the white oak family. However, yeah, well, I'm I'm out here making broad statements. What are you gonna do about it? Well, listen, I'm yeah, the forester. We, we like I'm literally I'm a forester. I'm a forester. Okay, what can oh I'm yeah, name every tree. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, name white every oak, forest. Alba. <laughs> forest Gump. No, but um... <laughs> Forest Whitaker. <laughs> oh. You call me black? Uh, um, yeah. So. With along those lines, I will say white oak, you know, is very commonly used for whiskey barrels. That's what it's um, most used American for. American oak barrels, son. Yeah, and in fact, it's um, you can't have American whiskey if it's not in whiskey barrel or non-white oak bourbon. Whiskey barrels. 
Correct. Yeah. Whatever bourbon, bourbon. Eh, we have whiskey here too. It doesn't matter. In Tennessee, I'm closer to Tennessee. But um, no. So that that kind of brings up a good point as well. Um, I would urge anyone who does have, um, does buy property with timberland on it. Uh, <laughs> Damn, your property got the fresh tims on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't live in Detroit, so we don't have those here. But uh, yeah. Uh, that's something something you should consider is either consulting a forester. I'm sure there's one near you, or uh, you know, I guess going to uh, going and getting an education in forestry because it's a great field. But um, yeah, something that's really useful is being able to grow good wood, you know, and regenerate hardwoods and everything, which take a very long time, especially oaks. And that's something that is not very done very often nowadays. Especially down here, because what's easy is pine, yellow pine. That's what everyone grows. And then up north, it's uh, various kinds of like cedars uh, and whatnot. So, and firs and everything. And the thing is, these are crop trees. They grow, they regenerate them really fast. And they're generally low quality. That's the same lumber that you're buying from the store. So, store-bought lumber is generally terrible. It's like the worst kind of lumber. Because not only, you mentioned it being pressure-treated, pressure-treated wood sucks. It's terrible. Whatever. But it's also uh, the fact that these trees have, are, you know, they are pushed to the very, their very physiological limits from, you know, having an, a, a, basically the entire lifespan of a, of a yellow pine, mostly a loblolly pine, uh, in 25 years like a 25 to 30 year rotation that's really fast and does not produce very good wood so this stuff is not going to last very long i mean it's fine for like maybe interior uh like veneer or uh siding things like that but if you actually want structural lumber it's not the best and that's why these prefabricated houses are made of that so something you should consider especially if you're thinking of buying a piece of land somewhere is where are you going to get your your lumber do you have lumber out on your property do you have a um, that you could use do you have a neighbor who has like a little wood miser mill or something like that who can uh help you cut stuff to length and, and do what you need to do because if you're just relying on the stuff from the store or whatever your you know construction company finds then that's you're not going to have the best house and you're going to start to have a lot of issues down the line and this comes down i mean really just goes down to all kinds of materials as well like if you're just you know doing a uh, timber-framed house with drywall, uh, that thing is not going to stand up to anything. You know, you talk about snow on your roof, your roof very well might collapse if there's too much weight on there. But if you actually build it properly, then hopefully your house will survive. Uh, also, yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Thinking about, uh, talking about shingles, though. I, uh, back in, we, you know, we have lots of tornadoes down here. Uh, but back in, uh, when was it? It was March. There was a really big tornado ripped through a town just north of me, um, Amory, Mississippi. And, you know, it literally looked like a nuke went off there. I was up there doing uh, work, uh, relief work with some guys. And, you know, at one point or several points, we were at uh, different places. But one, we were putting tarps over a house who just had holes ripped in the roof by the wind, just ripping entire chunks of, uh, you know, plywood and shingle off. So... I'm not saying that, that those kind of conditions won't rip a tin roof off, 
But replacing a tin roof may be slightly more expensive than replacing um, shingles, but it's uh, if it's properly installed, it's probably not going to fly off like all your little shingles who just get every time there's a gust of wind more than 65 miles per hour, uh, they just start flying. So, yeah. yeah Never asked the forestry guy about lumber. Yeah, I remember when I uh, when I worked at Lowe's in the lumber area, we uh, we would have the pressure treated wood, and you know we you, you have to like we would get big trucks at regular intervals. So we were uh, you know I would go and take off the whole like pallets and then uh, put them on the shelves and stuff. But anyway, there was a there was a heater on the ceiling, like one of the big heating units for the building, and where did we put the pressure treated lumber was right underneath that just by chance where that was set up. So we'd have this pressure treated lumber and we'd put kind of the uncommon stuff for like the overflow up there. And if it was overflow, it was probably because the, uh, the stuff sold real quick, like your two by fours and your two by sixes and and stuff like that, four by fours. Um, but occasionally we'd have some like, you know, four by four band of, pressure treated wood that had been up there for so damn long because we just didn't it was like in a weird position or something nobody wanted to get it um i was a little too brave on the forklift usually but it, it paid off in the long run but yeah i would like pull that down and you cut the bands and all the wood would just bend and contort in ways that you didn't even know were possible because the the when you have pressure treated wood it's treated with um uh um the shit you put on plants to keep bugs off. Mm-hmm. Herbicides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, uh, sorry, pesticides. Whatever. Yes, pesticides. So it's treated with pesticides, which are all water-based. So you soak it in pesticide, and then, you know, you you the drivers drop it off at Lowe's who put it underneath a, uh, a heating unit, and then it just dries out all of the water and warps and contorts the wood, and then it's all in, you know, bands so then when you cut them then they just spring out everywhere so it was kind of funny though because we would take and your local hardware store might do this too where they have we would take all the really warped pieces that were basically beyond salvageable and we would all um we take it all put it in like a huge band and then essentially we would sell it for like a crazy discount and if it sat there for too long then we'd knock it down even more so if you have a lot of stuff that you need to do with, with smaller pieces where you can take like a warp two by four and cut out a little section of it and do whatever, um, you know, sometimes you can get some pretty good deals in there. Or if you have, uh, we'd even have like really warp sheets of OSB and stuff too. So if you have smaller things that you're trying to make, um, yeah, you can usually get like a good bulk deal on warped wood if you, if you can utilize it. Yeah. I mean, something else with pressure treated wood too it's just uh in terms of like preserving wood there's a lot of good ways to do that um that don't involve you know putting them in a kiln and then soaking them in with under under pressure with uh pesticides and one of the oldest ways to preserve like fence posts and all kinds of things is basically putting a little drilling a hole in it um pouring, you know, old diesel fuel or some kind of oil in there and then putting a little like tapping a plug in there. And then every year you fill it up, you fill it back up, fill up that little hole and that'll keep it preserved. And those will last for, uh, 
I mean, sometimes uh, hundreds of years. Actually, if you look at old uh, power poles, most of them have uh, that little 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 hole in the bottom that uh, they used to fill with like creosote and other oils and stuff. Yeah, a lot of guys in my area they'll uh, they'll go ahead and put diesel fuel, motor oil is a big one around here. They'll put on the bottom of them. I went with the method of charring the wood before I put it on the ground. That was the method I went with. Either one will work. It's just it's so much better than pressure treated crap. It's oh, yeah. gonna rot away and yeah, I didn't. Uh, years. Every so for me personally, I needed the lumber for my uh, house. I actually went out and bought one of those gas powered sawmills and just. And took all the natural timber and just processed it myself. Heck yeah. Do you know what you it's were cutting? a large cutting, investment, mostly? but it pays off. Uh, here we go back on the wood grind. No, seriously, what were you uh, like? Yeah, what were you using? Uh, for the exterior, it was a lot of poplar wood and uh, cedar that was on the property. And for the inside, I just used up some pine to fill in the framework and the uh, support. So I was just using a lot of pine. I wanted to keep the pine on the inside and the more... Uh, I didn't really have a lot of cedar around. There was good cedar that was ready to be harvested and used in the, the building project. So I used uh, pine on the inside and a lot of the cedar and pop on the outside. Yeah, that's good stuff. Um, I don't need to go uh, and indulge my autism about timber. But um, that's, that's one thing. Yeah, like I, I mentioned a wood miser mill earlier. That's basically what you're talking about. Like one of those little gas powered ones. Yeah. You know, you, you have a buddy who has, <clears throat> goodness, you have a buddy or a neighbor who has one. You can uh, uh, call him over, say like, hey, I'll, you know, pay you for your time, but I'd like to use this. I need your help, whatever. And something that's great, too, is, I mean, I know not everyone has family where they are, but, you know, friends, family, using these, not using them, but, you know, taking advantage of the the people who are there to help you, who want to help you, to uh, help build your house. I mean, my fiance's cousin, he, uh, well, two of her cousins, actually, they have houses that they built out on the family property and they built them themselves um just had their brothers and um her dad and everybody come help and there are even a bunch of uh mennonites that live in the area and they're you know known to help they help with cattle sometimes and they help with building and whatnot too because you know just kind of traditional communities and that's something that you should if you're going to homestead you should try and take advantage of and join a, a more traditional community who actually wants to support each other yeah because the generally the the only people now that are homesteading are like you know people like that like generally your uh your your yuppies that live in the city aren't like oh i need to move out and buy all this land and put goats and kangaroos on it yeah and if they do move out to the land or to the to the country it's more like this is my summer home you know, this is, yeah. I, I go to the Smoky Mountains every uh, every summer and spend the time up there. And that's something oh, I yeah, absolutely the hate. granola girls live in a van. Yeah, I don't even start <laughs> Something I hate. That's, yeah. Yeah, living in a van down by the river. <laughs> <laughs> right, Chris Farley. That's I funny. love a van uh... down by the river. <laughs> What, uh, what, what other good questions did you get? Or like, what, what were like the other biggest hitters? Uh, let's see. I got a lot of them about, uh, I got one, it was a pretty big one, about, uh, what firearms you should use or have handy on your homestead 
for uh, hunting and personal protection. And uh, I'm on my 300 blackout arc right now. The uh, I got a lot of people who suggested a rifle with their uh, their question, and I got a, a lot of alarming uh, moves in the gun suggestions. And, oh jeez, uh, Personally, I recommend that uh, you might as well just go back to a matchlock if you're going to use a Mosin. Uh, Honestly, it, yeah. I mean, personally, I mean, a lot of times, if you don't have the money, you're not going to be really buying up a lot of guns on a homestead. I mean, personally, I'm never going to use them. I mean, I don't want to personally have a personal arsenal. Some people do like collecting a lot of firearms. It's up to you. Uh, I would recommend having one rifle for your defense and have another one for your game because people and deer are two separate things. Um, people fire back, deer usually do not. Uh, if you have a deer firing back, it's most likely not a deer, and you should see if it has antlers and walking around on two legs because yep. uh, it's probably not a deer. Um, I got a lot of people asking about <laughs> That's why the land was so cheap. Yeah, they got the, the skinwalkers in it. Got the Wendigo. Yeah. Bought Skinwalker but, uh, Ranch for a dollar back in 1989. Exactly. Sasquatch was just chilling on the riverbank. <laughs> All the orbs but, uh, to keep me up at night. I have a yeah, a lot of people suggested. Later. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, a lot of people out there, they they put their little suggestions for what rifle they thought would be best. Um, and I mean, a lot of people, if you have a military background or any type of woodman background, you're going to know which one's going to best suit you. Uh, personally, you want to find a rifle, any type of rifle, shotgun, whatever weapon you want to buy. For one, it needs to be sustainable. As in, like, uh, you need to be able to either buy ammunition or reload it for a very cost-effective way. That means don't go out and buy a, uh, you know, a French, I don't know, Gras rifle from 1874 because it was used in some battle that you saw on YouTube. Don't go out and buy that because, you you know, it's just going to break the bank. You want to buy I something love when that you get you can... to the 1874 part of YouTube. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you got those guys with the weird mustaches who uh, are going to go fight the Zulus at 2 o'clock and go talk about their tea and rifles at 4 and, uh, you know, don't go out and buy something stupid. Don't go out and impulse buy something because you saw someone on YouTube shoot it for five seconds on a short and you decide that's going to be you. Um, you want to buy something, like I said, that's sustainable. You also want to buy something you can get parts for. So uh, if you go out and you buy, uh, I don't know, a Mosin, are you going to be able to locally get parts for that? Are you going to be going on the Internet and getting scalped by, uh, you know, everybody on those auction websites? Or are you going to go out and buy, you know, something, especially here in the United States? The American military has been around for quite some time, and they have quite the amount of rifles they've used over the years that they have dumped off on the civilian market. And uh, there's also a civilian firearms industry in America, one of the largest in the world, as everyone should know. There's plenty of things to choose from besides the uh, Soviet garbage rod. And, uh, you know, it's just you need to find what best fits you. If you don't like semi-automatic and you like a bolt-action more, then you should use that for your game rifle personally, for a home defense rifle. I recommend semi-automatic. Uh, and I'm pretty much impartial to the Armalite rifle, as impartial to me for a home defense against a human. Uh, in my opinion, an Armalite rifle is one of the best uh, defense weapons you can have. And, uh, you know, some people might like Kalashnikovs, or, you know, people have state laws they got to abide by. So there's many factors in there. Just don't go out thinking, you know, I had a lot of people who are just dead set on one rifle and just they're basically trying to, like, just get me to say that. You got to look at just local laws. Think about the ammunition. You know, you can reload your own ammunition, but uh, 
one thing about brass ammunition is eventually you can't put primers in it anymore. Eventually, the throat of the cartridge just gets worn out, you know. And uh, another thing I recommend if you want to get into it, try out black powder. Try out muzzle loaders. Uh, personally, I've had the uh, same muzzle loading rifle I've been hunting with for the past uh, eight years, a flintlock. And uh, personally, I think a great case can be made that a uh, smoothbore flintlock uh, firearm could outlast any of your modern cartridge rifles in terms of uh, if you know shit hit the fan and you couldn't go out and buy ammunition anymore, you didn't have a supply to reload it. Well, that was something that we had talked about last time too because I remember that when when we did the last one, it was probably right right around a year ago actually now that I think of it. But uh, I had just gotten a couple black powder guns and they were super cheap and that was sort of the thing is that um, you know you can you can feasibly hunt with them. And like you said, they're not going to be a good defense rifle, but they're going to be a good hunting rifle. Yeah. And you can make black powder at home. You can cast projectiles at home. Um, you can make your patches at home. You know, even even like for me, I have uh, percussion caps. I don't have flintlock, which, you know, with percussion caps, are you able to make your own percussion caps? I, I'm sure you could, but it would probably be tedious. Uh, but, local here uses soda canes and uh, he makes his own uh, sort of concoction for mercury fulminate. I don't know it, and I, I don't know if I trust it. He, he is missing two fingers. I'll let him know. <laughs> and that is uh, not a not a joke. He is missing two fingers. That was Damn. just uh, Apache, right? an accident. But yeah, the uh, completely unrelated. <laughs> completely unrelated to the uh, the soda can uh, percussion caps. But even even if you're running a percussion cap where you have to get the actual caps themselves, and even if you just wanted to streamline the process and go buy patches. That stuff is so damn cheap. You can buy. Oh, yeah. Have you went into? Oh, a, yeah, yeah, dude. If you went into the store with with fifty bucks, you would you would come out with a lifetime supply and more. And like, you figure too with with something like that, your caps. Um, you know, it's it's yeah, it's one cap per round, one one patch per round. But you're not firing at the rate that you would going off with your with your AR-15 and mag dumping into trash like that 30 rounds is going to take quite a while for you to get it off. And um, to be honest too, like when you're shooting black powder guns for fun, you could, you can realistically get around with, or uh, you know, you can, you can go ahead and shoot them all day if you wanted to. But at the end of the day, you're probably not going to fire more than a hundred rounds a day at most. And that's like a day of going out for fun and shooting. That's not a day of hunting where you might get a round off or, you know, maybe two if you're lucky. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, a lot about black powder too is um, especially making. I don't, I'm sure everybody knows here. I'm sure people have already learned it here. One of the best trees to make charcoal with is willow, in my opinion. Um, making your own charcoal. And uh, when I first learned to make black powder, I was still in Tasmania at the time, and I was told that you get some willow wood or any type of wood down in the bush because you know we lived in the bush. You didn't really have much. Any type of wood, but in America, at least willow is one of the ones I've heard the best and I've had the best performance from. And uh, then you just need the sulfur and the potassium nitrate. And uh, in the bush, they used to go to, in town, go to the hardware store and buy a stump grinder, stump remover. And uh, they'd use that for their uh, black powder. I mean, there's many ways to skin a cat on black powder. Um, Personally, when I go hunting, I usually use black powder just because I don't deplete cartridge ammunition. And uh, usually as a, you know, single homesteader, you don't need a, 
harvest more than two, three deer to supplement your food supply. Sometimes a little more, depending on how much you're going to eat, if you have more people to take care of. But uh, just going out on a limb here, I wouldn't suggest going out and buying the, uh, the, the old 1914 Enfield rifle to be your personal defense weapon, because it's not 1914 anymore. Um, for example, when I first came to America, first immigrated from Australia to here, the only rifle I had in my possession was a Model 1884 Martini Henry rifle that I bought for shits and giggles back in uh, uh, 1999. And I had bought that because, uh, well, you know, like the Zulu movie, it was being sold for $200, Australian dollars, and I decided why the hell not. Um, do I recommend you going out and doing that? No. If you just want something to shoot the shit with, you know, it is what it is, but if you want a dependable hunting rifle and you want a dependable uh, defense weapon, I'll highly recommend dispersing them. Um, if you want a multi-role weapon, um, 12-gauge shotgun is another one that has multiple purposes, multiple uses. If you don't want to buy a strictly muzzle loader, you can buy a 12-gauge shotgun, and you can make that in your muzzle loader. You can use slugs, shot ammunition. It all depends on what you want to utilize it for. I was about but to I recommend that. Yeah, yeah. One of one of the single shot ones. I know that uh, that Dave Canterbury online has a whole series about uh, um, using a single shot twelve gauge as like your um, kind of survival rifle. Yeah, in the when I was growing up, and I don't know if you guys know about this company. There was an American company called Harrington and Richardson. In H uh, and R is what they were called. Yeah. Oh and yeah, they, they made, make like like bolt actions and stuff, yeah. don't they? So they had a, a single shot lineup called the Handy Rifle, and uh, they had these uh, rifles where all the stocks were all the same. All you did was push a keyway out and change out the barrel. Uh, you could have 44 Magnum, 12 gauge. Uh, they had 45 caliber, 58 caliber muzzle loading rifles, uh, 20 gauge. They had all kinds of different barrels you could pop on. Those, in my opinion, are the ultimate homesteading weapon because you all you have to do is put the base investment on the receiver and the stock and just buy the barrels and you have you know your game rifle in many different calibers you could as you say say you live in an area where you can hunt a uh, waterfowl or you can hunt deer or a small game like a squirrel or a uh, like a any type of a rodent i guess you could say any type of mammal um and you want to use shot or a slug or a round ball or a uh, high power cartridge you can get that all out of one rifle compared to buying that uh, that that guy down the street with his uh, I know what I have World War One Battle of the Somme Enfield or your uh, June fourth nineteen you know, June sixth nineteen forty four M1 Garin that was at D Day and he knows so because he was told so kind of guy or that guy who knew a guy from Vietnam War who was the best sniper in the world and had this rifle and you know you don't want to buy into that personally you want to buy something that uh is made for the purpose. And I mean, I don't discourage if, if you're hell-bent and set on buying a military surplus rifle, that's on you. But personally, I mean, I've been in the military and uh, I know what happens to a lot of those rifles. I know how many rounds get put down range out of those rifles. And I, from experience, I can tell you how some people take care of those rifles. And uh, once rifles are put out of service, they've had uh, quite the service life sometimes. And especially older rifles. Back in the day, they used cordite ammunition. So... A lot of corrosion, a lot of uh, damage to the rifling of certain rifles. So I wouldn't exactly jump out and buy one. If you went to your local gun shop and you found one for $100, $200, I 
maybe even less, and it was a sound investment in your opinion, then, uh, you know, go ahead. And I'm not going to go on talking about military surplus rifles. I'm sure there's other sources of information out there where, you know, you yourself, the viewer, can find that information yourself. But uh, in my personal opinion, a good homestead rifle is uh, one, like the handy rifle, where you can switch out calibers. If you don't want that and you just want a cheap 12-gauge shotgun, I mean, most gun stores, and especially in my area, sell those things for $40. And that can be a good starting weapon. I know personally, when I first started out, I, uh, like I said, only had the Martini. Had basically no ammunition for it because uh, they haven't made that commercially since probably the 1920s. And uh, I started out with a muzzle loader because it was the first thing I would get my hands on. And uh, after that, you know, I branched out with a couple other rifles. But uh, I would definitely keep your home defense rifle separate from your hunting rifle. Don't expect you're going to take your Arasaka Japanese rifle to sword bayonet and bonsai charge the first man that comes through the door. Uh, you know, it's it's not... It, it can be funny, it's a joke, but don't. I wouldn't rely on that in a situation. Uh, a lot of people think that in a home defense situation, they're going to be uh, a Templar knight. Most of the time, you're probably going to be scared shitless. And uh, holding a bolt-action rifle where you have to squeeze off one and rack a bolt, and making a lot of noise while racking that bolt isn't exactly going to be your best alternative. But uh, And especially with... I had a lot of questions about home defense for a homestead. Um, to, as long as you're not setting up your homestead down the street from uh, a high-crime area or a homeless camp or, you know, the downtown of your local shit city, you shouldn't really have to worry about people trying to, to take what's yours or attempt to harm you. Uh, I wouldn't put a high priority in that. I mean, definitely teach your family members how to defend themselves, teach your kids how to defend themselves, but I wouldn't put a high priority into thinking about defending yourself all the time. It's not like the Redcoats are coming and you have to defend Hearth and Home from King George. You know, that happened long ago, and I wouldn't really think that, the, you know, the whole world's coming to get you. Yeah. But uh, that was a, a very high volume question asked and uh, asked and uh, I mean, I'll say personally, that, you know, on the on the last point, um, for most people, I'd say, especially in my area, really, the most of what you need to worry about, at least right now, is like some tweaker uh, meth head who's driving through the area and sees something. Um, down your, you know, like looks down your driveway or something and he goes, Ooh, I want that. Yeah. I don't know. Lawnmower, you know, or he goes to me every day to convert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you steal everyone's zero turns, but it, yeah, it's like this guy does not want to break in your house and like kill your family. He's not there to invade. He's there to sneak in, uh, take something out of your front yard and sneak out. Kind of like uh, a fox or a coyote or something, which is probably the most likely thing that you're going to have to deal with. Um, you know, pests, um, varmints, critters, as I like to call them, um, who are going to come and uh, mess with your livestock, mess with uh, whatever else. I don't know if there are hogs up where y'all are, but feral hogs are a big thing down this part of the country. Yeah, we've had and, a few uh, sightings. Luckily, yeah, we don't have them in full blast. They will destroy your uh, your like your property, destroy fences, they'll um, spread diseases, do all kinds of terrible stuff. So that these are things that, you know, you They're should be concerned about. They're just like me about. for real. Uh, that's not a good thing yeah. to be. Did but, that, like, all <laughs> but see, it's like these are probably the most likely threats for most people. And yes, an AR is really useful for that. But for me personally, I bounce somewhere between, um, you know, like modern, like, 
tactical AR plate carrier guy or like cowboy slash um, Daniel Day Lewis from Last of the Mohicans. You know, so oh, yeah. That's I'm what some- I have with my Flintlock rifle. Yeah, I'm somewhere in there. I mean, my first gun was a was a lever gun, so you know, and I still have it and always yeah, those will. Those are amazing firearms, especially the American made Winchester. Oh yeah, amazing yeah. firearms. Yeah, I've got a, a Henry, um, one of like the twenty some, I don't know, early twenty tens, um, which they're still good quality, but like pre COVID, American gun companies were all so much better than what's what's coming out today. Oh yeah, especially the original ones too. Yeah, uh, my first hunting rifle I actually purchased here in the United States was a Savage ninety nine. Mm, that's in, a uh, classic. <laughs> that, uh, it's in 3855 Winchester. And I've got to say, it was very, very. I was I had my mind sold on a Winchester. Growing up in Australia, you know, I uh, watched a lot of John Wayne, Butch, you know, Butch Cassidy, Sundance Kid, yes. things like that. And uh, Clint Eastwood. Uh, so, you know, when I came to America, you know, the first thing, because for those who don't know, Australia is a uh, just an oceanic Soviet republic. Uh it's all they are. Uh, you can't own guns. When you can't own them, they have to be locked away. In Australia, you have to lock your firearm away. So if you own just, and this is why America is 10 times better. Say you own a uh, reproduction British brown best musket. And yeah. because I, I actually personally knew someone who had this incident happen, that musket he owned had an overall length of right around uh, four and a half feet. He had to actually have a custom gun locker made to store it away. His, his I mean, mother loader. You know? Yeah. Who's going to go out there and load powder patch and ball to cause widespread havoc? Besides, of course, the British themselves. That's what I mean, they did across the world. For, honestly, you know, if, you could, if, you could, if you could go and mass, commit like a mass killing with a brown vest, then... Honestly, You've earned it, Chief. You, you earned it. You're free to go. Yeah. <laughs> that's, it's impressive. But that's obviously, it's just like you're saying. It's not, obviously. We all know, that, I mean, how this, the cookie crumbles. It's not a, because of safety concerns or anything like that. It's yeah, just, it's for control. It all yeah. boils down to control. You know, and that's one of the reasons why I left Australia for America. And one of the reasons why I started Homestead, because you make your own decisions. Yeah. And uh, some decisions can be stupid. I've learned the hard way on numerous occasions. And, uh, you know, but, um, yeah, I mean, personally, like I said, in my opinion, with the whole firearm topic, uh, you know, I have seen people down south with the armor light rifles who shoot the hogs. And, uh, I mean, the armor light rifle is another one. It's like I was talking about with the, uh, barrels that can be changed out. Armor light rifles can be, have multiple calibers. You know, it's only two pins to go to the next caliber. Yeah. And, uh, point, you know, that's more of the modern take on the old utility rifle. And, uh. I'm a fan of everything, you know, whatever fits you personally. But I guess just to end off this this question with its answers, I wouldn't be keen to go running out and buy the old 1914 railroad iron and timber. I would go find something a little newer with a little more parts availability in case something breaks. Because just like a car, guns are mechanical and they have moving parts that need to be cleaned, lubed, and sometimes break. Yeah. Well said. Definitely. Uh, so I guess uh, another another question. This was om- asked almost as much as that the firearms question was uh, vehicles. Um, people asked what vehicles they should own. Uh, they asked what brands they should own. I'm not really gonna get into that. That's 2006 kind of Silver Pontiac Grand Prix. 
<laughs> yeah, those are the ones that uh, hog up traffic and uh, cause uh, incidents of road rage. Yeah, I, I, I went out of like a ramp this morning. It was pretty short, but it was about uh, people using turn signals. And it was all because of a 2006 silver Pontiac Grand Prix. And maybe not 2006, but somewhere around that year. When Some I was old Australia, shitty. It was, uh, Holden, anything Holden. Uh, Holden, Commodore, things like that. Those people. They had uh, some Ford cars, you know. A couple of old Fords. They would uh, Falcons, things like that. Hog the road. Or the guys who drive BMWs. You know. Here it's but, Dodge uh, Rams. Oh, Dodge. In, uh, so, like, in Australia, you know, um, vehicles, are, we have a lot of American vehicles. Full General Motors, uh, some of the largest selling ones. We also have Toyotas. Uh, so here in America, you have many things to choose from, both old and new. Um, and it all depends on your skill. And this goes, I'm, I'll tie this in with what I said in the last video we made. Learn, learn trades, guys. Uh, go out there and learn some trades. Uh, don't be just a bump on a log. Don't go into uh, homesteading <laughs> not knowing a thing. Learn some trades, you know. Learn how to run some wire. Learn how to change your own oil. You know, don't pay uh, some... Yeah, you know, don't don't pay other people to... Uh, yeah, welding, especially. That's one of the things I learned and made me lots of money. Uh, learn trades. Um, being Having a liberal arts degree is going to get you nowhere. Uh, having certain degrees is going to get you nowhere. Right now, we have a booming in back home in Australia, in the European Union, and in America, where AI is coming about. And a lot of people who had computer jobs are now, you know, teetering on a uh, certain unrecoverable point. But uh, for these vehicles... Learning how to maintain them is pretty easy, depending on your vehicle you own. I mean, like we said in the last video, uh, vehicles that come with uh, electronic computers, they can be very costly to repair, and the computers can fail. They're only a computer. And just imagine the computer you have in your house, put that in a truck or a car that's going down the road with dust and grime and oil and all kinds of things getting on it in all types of temperatures throughout the day and the year. Things break down. Uh, cars break down. Trucks break down. So on a homestead, if you're going off-grid and you're going to live on a property that probably doesn't have a well-developed road or in an area with not well-developed roads, um, I'm sure anybody who lives in the American South, I'm, I haven't been to certain states down there, there's a lot of roads that aren't really well-developed. And in my area in Appalachia, there's a lot of roads that flood out, they fall apart, you know, they're just not well-maintained because you're not the priority of your state in some remote location. We don't actually and, uh, have roads here. We just, yeah, we have a lot of gravel and dirt paths here. Yeah. <laughs> My uh, way back is gravel. I laid the gravel out because I was tired of the mud holes. But uh, I recommend, personally, a four-wheel drive. Um, four-wheel drive can get you in and out of a lot of situations. Four-wheel drive, most of the time, are your utility vehicles. I do highly go against buying certain uh, manufacturers of automobiles, especially here in the United States. Uh, there's certain automobiles sold here that we got over in Australia. They have a different name for them, same vehicle. <clears throat> and because of some American regulations, they kind of didn't turn out well. A lot of your vehicles made by uh, a company uh, formerly known as Dotson, now known as uh, Nissan, or uh, I guess you guys pronounce it here, Nissan. Um, uh, Nissan doesn't really make good vehicles, um, in my opinion. I've never seen a good one. And I worked as a, stint, as a uh, mechanic before I went in the Army. I uh, don't like them. Personally, I don't think they're good vehicles. They uh, terrible fuel economy. Their transmissions are weak. Um, 
they're not very strong and they're very 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 prone to rust so anyone who lives above the american south is going to know rust is a major issue yep. salting of the roads and if you live in coastal areas near salt water you're also going to have a lot of issues with rust personally a well-built 4x4 uh toyota makes a great 4x4 uh, i'm not really too well versed with a lot of the american vehicles such as the the, the pickup trucks like the tundra and the tacoma uh more of your older Toyotas, like maybe uh, 1997 and further back. We had those in Australia. They were known as the Hilux in Australia, and uh, they might have been known as the Hilux here. Yeah, um, we had uh, the old ones were known here as the, the Toyota pickup, and then that uh, became the, the, the Tacoma. The Hilux is slightly different. I believe that the Hiluxes, for the most part, are diesel, but I could be wrong. Yeah, in that. Australia now, they're mostly diesel. We used to have gasoline ones way back when, but uh, it's everything's gone really to diesel because a lot of times diesel's cheaper to produce. Hmm. And uh, especially economy, and uh, but um, you know, you also have your American home brands. You have Ford. Um, personally, I've had a lot of good Ford vehicles. Um, I also don't recommend going out and buying new vehicles. I mean, if you're going to be on Homestead, you're going to want a vehicle that's going to start and run every single day. You're going to need it to work, uh, and it also has to deal with your application. So if you're just needing a, a vehicle that you can throw stuff in a, a bed, usually a little Ute, uh things like the small trucks the ford ranger um the ranger things like sweet. that it was a very small vehicle you can throw things in the bed just carry them around if you're looking for something you can pull a small trailer uh maybe you're going to transport livestock around you know maybe sell goats at local fairs and things make your money that way haul a little bit of firewood make some side money um you always have the half ton lineup of pickup trucks throughout the united states the uh ford f-150 the um what else the chevrolet uh 1500 the dodge 1500 i'm not Never owned a Dodge, so I can't really speak on Dodge. I never owned a Chevrolet either, so I can't really speak on them. I'm sure people have their reserved uh, vehicle brands that they like. That's like Personally, the weirdest thing is like the brand loyalty to vehicles. Like, oh, yeah. People will like, be loyal loyal to the foil, loyal to anything they like. Yeah. It's it's just funny, though, because like I forget who, who I was talking to, but I mentioned something about the Ranger, and they were just like shitting up a storm on Ford, and I'm like, you know, me and and like my first vehicle is a ford ranger and my family's owned quite a few fords and they've all been pretty good like it's like you said right with any vehicle you're gonna uh eventually it's gonna you know be at the end of its lifespan especially up here in the north with all the salt um but the last year i've been driving a jeep wrangler which i never i had always said that i was never gonna buy a jeep and then uh and then i needed a new vehicle and at the time all the toyota pickups were way 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 overpriced so i went ahead and I, I bought a jeep because i figured that with um with that i have an suv that's true four-wheel drive it's it's very good off-road too um and i could put a trailer on it and essentially get more utility than than the bed of a truck granted you know with the truck bed you always have it on you so um yeah you know you don't need to plan ahead and, and pack the trailer or anything and nobody's going to drive around with the trailer on all the time like an empty trailer yeah yeah i yeah, pros uh, and cons to everything yeah i have a twitch uh toyota um forerunner yeah that's the one and uh no it's it's i didn't buy it new i i definitely paid a little more than i wanted to for it because i bought it earlier this year um after wrecking my truck but um, frankly, it was it wasn't a bad deal, honestly. As far as used cars go, right now, it could have been a lot worse. 
but that's one of my favorite things about it. Obviously, nice, spacious SUV is nice, whatever, going to be nice um, for kids as well. But part of it is just like the transmission is really simple. These, uh, those just five-speed, old five-speed Toyota transmissions are super easy to work on. And they that low gear ratio doesn't have the best like mileage you know, on the highway or anything like that, but I can crawl up anything. I, I won't get stuck anywhere. And having to go drive around the pasture and everything, um, that's really useful. You know, it's really nice to have. And just, you know, talking about utility vehicles, just in general, having something that is able to be used on the homestead. You know, you, you can't buy your little dinky little car. Heck, my my parents bought like a Toyota Camry or something like that um, back in like 2019. It was something, maybe it was a Hyundai, Honda or something. I don't know, Either, whatever. It was one of those little tiny dinky Asian cars. And it, I mean, like this thing would scrape when you went over a pothole. It was that low to the ground. You know, it's not something that you can take anywhere serious. Certainly not around here. And they, they live in town over in South Carolina. Uh, you know, that, and it was bad enough there. It would be terrible here. And that's goes for most places. If you're living out, I mean, like I have to take a, uh, a gravel road, long gravel road that goes through, um, a bunch of timberland to get to town. So, and then sometimes it floods, you know, sometimes there's water all over the road because there's a Creek down there when it rains, especially in the winter time, it just gets flooded. And so that's just, I mean, part of it is if you're living that, you know, living out of the way, it can be tempting, like, you know, to get some, some nice, like you, you have people that like overland or whatever, which side note, overlanding is not real. It's literally just sleeping in your car. You're a hobo. Get over it. But a lot of these people, they're like, all right, I'm going to get my homestead. I'm going to have my cool tricked out vehicle. But Graham, I remember, I remember the last episode, you talking about your old diesel, um, which like you can just raid a grease trap and run off of that. And that's something my uh, next yeah. vehicle is going to be an old diesel pickup. Um, I don't know what I'm going to get, but I'll get it. I'll figure it out yeah. because um, that's something I want. So for example, like, my growing up in Tasmania and Australia, we have a lot of roads that are just dirt and they go on for hundreds of miles. You could drive four hours and see nothing but a dirt road, you know, uh, cars overheat. There's, there's been times where I have, we've done military maneuvers when I was in the army and you'd see some old truck from the sixties back in the bush where somebody broke down, they pushed it off the road and left it there. They couldn't come back to recover it, you know, till I recover um, it for them. Yeah. You take all the copper wire out and leave the rest. Yep. But, uh, <laughs> um, like I was saying with uh, the trucks, you know, um, most of the time, either an SUV or a truck. Like one of, one of the questions was, what vehicles do I personally own? Uh, so I own five vehicles that I currently have running and I have a couple of projects I'm putting together. Uh, and the main thing about buying vehicles is uh, low cost, high return. Buy something cheap, even have to put a little bit of money to fix it up it's going to always pay much, much more back into your pocket if you use it for work, for uh, daily transportation, making you money. So the, the vehicles I own, uh, the first vehicle I purchased when coming to America, because I didn't have anything when I first got here, uh, I bought this old beta Mitsubishi Galant. Uh, it was the only thing I could get my hands on, and I wasn't going to hold it for long. 
Uh, the first vehicle I bought was four-wheel drive. It was a 1966 International Harvester Scout. Um, I don't recommend for everybody to go out and buy the oldest vehicle possible. Um, they do take a considerable level of uh, maintenance knowledge. Uh, they are older, older systems, and uh, there's not a lot of service information around anymore for the older vehicles. Um, but if you think you can go ahead and do it. So I own a 1966 International Harvester Scout, which is just a 4x4, kind of like the Ford Bronco and the, the Jeep. Um, I own a uh, uh, 1986 Ford Ranger that uh, has a uh, Mitsubishi diesel engine in it. I own a, uh, well, used to own a Ford pickup truck with a diesel engine, which I am, I am pulling out and putting into another Ford pickup truck. Uh, that is uh, a diesel engine, which... This does the one in the last video I talked about using uh, grease oil and uh, used motor oil. Um, and then I have a uh, kind of like a daily driver, uh, 1995 F-150. And then my most recent addition was a 1966 uh, F-350. And that's kind of like my uh, tow-hauling truck. Kind of tow everything around with that. And until I get the diesel back up and running. And uh, especially with fuel type, all right? So gasoline, of course, uh, I'm just not going to go on a rant about mechanical things. Everybody can learn that for themselves. But gasoline requires uh, air, fuel, and spark from the spark plug, which requires electricity. Uh, gas is put in the, the cylinder of the engine. Uh, the piston comes up, compresses the air. It sparks it, blows it up, sends it down, sends out the exhaust. Diesel does not require a spark plug. It just requires heat from compression. So in theory... Diesel engines are kind of more for the people who, especially the old mechanical ones. If you in that whole EMP is going to fall and knock out my grandfather clock and my computer and my phone, uh, diesel engines will, in theory, survive that a little better than a gasoline engine car, especially the new ones with computers. And I wouldn't recommend anybody out there who has a diesel engine who listens to this podcast. Um, I wouldn't recommend running, just dumping motor oil right into your fuel tank, especially on newer diesels. Uh, for one, they're computer controlled now, so they probably won't even start. Um, for two, newer diesels, very uh, uh, finite in their operation. So anything that's not really diesel fuel that gets in there might shut it off. But older diesels, say 2002 and backwards, you can dump motor oil them and run them just the way they are. I would mix it with diesel fuel first before you just dump it straight in. But uh, yeah, older diesels, 2002 and backwards, especially the ones that are purely mechanical with no computer whatsoever, run perfectly fine. And uh, like I said, vehicle choice all depends. If you just need a Ute, just drive around in. Like Nadria said, the Full Runner uh, with SUVs, Ford Bronco, Full Runner. Uh, I think Chevrolet has the, uh, I think it's called the Blazer. All those little vehicles, the SUVs, they're great for just running about. In Australia, we used to call them literally what they are runabouts. That used to be the name for SUVs back in the day in Australia was a runabout. And then you guys call them Utes. Yeah, Utes. Uh, yeah. We, uh, I had a little Mitsubishi back in Australia, a little Mitsubishi Triton, a little aluminum flatbed on the back, manual transmission, straight trucker. But uh, I should JB nah. Weld an Isuzu, uh, what, what was it, the Isuzu Trooper? Oh, like yeah. A Ford Ranger truck bed. Yeah, the Isuzu Trooper. Whew, now I'm bringing back memories now. That um, the Geo Tracker for the wife. Oh, yeah, basically a Suzuki sidekick for us. That was the Suzuki sidekick in Australia. I want a Suzuki, but, uh, Samur Suzuki Samurai. That would be fun. 
And another thing too, I've got a question, uh, a little bit off topic, but I got two questions which uh, kind of stood out to me. I didn't think really most Americans knew about these. Uh, I don't know if anybody knows what these are called, but they're a Japanese K truck. I don't know if anybody's heard of them before. Oh yeah, yes. the three wheeled things. Yeah. Uh, the they're, they're four wheels. It's like a uh, how do I describe it? It's like a, a cab like and a bed put together on a unibody. One. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, like little three cylinder engines. Usually power them along. Usually six hundred sixty cc's. Is that's what defines them as a K truck. Um, a lot of people gave me. I had two questions about uh, K trucks in general. And then a few people asking with other questions. So a K truck is really good for loading it down and driving around like a Ute. They get great fuel economy. Uh, they get like in American miles to gallon because you know some some people use the UK imperial system, some people use liters. Roughly forty three miles to the gallon. Um, they have they're geared to have high uh, high torque output. Now they're not going to be the fastest thing in the world. And they're definitely not going to meet up with American highway standards. They don't go out on the interstate in one of these things. I'm telling you right now. They usually top out miles per hour, probably around 60, 65 miles an hour. You could get them up to 70, but they're so small, I wouldn't take it up that far. Um, another thing with these people do drive them in the States. I've seen them personally here in my state. I've seen people driving them. Uh, we had them in Australia. Um Parts aren't exactly the easiest thing to get. You can't just go to your local parts store and order parts. You have to go on uh, Amazon or uh, any type of those online or postal order websites. You know, I wouldn't highly recommend them. It's like a little pet project that you just drive around. If you have something else, then yeah, go ahead. But I wouldn't make that your primary mode of transportation. I wouldn't recommend it. And a lot of imported vehicles, I wouldn't recommend that either. You really want to buy something that you can get parts for here in America. Because in a homestead, if something breaks, you have to fix it quite quickly, especially if it's your only mode of transportation. And, uh, you know, like I had a couple people ask, like, you know, types of trucks. And like I was saying, you know, if you wanted just a little Ford Ranger, uh, Mitsubishi had some pickup trucks for a little bit back in the day. America really doesn't have a small pickup truck market. Um, they might have some more. I'm not really up to date in the new American vehicles. I know back in the day they had the Ford Ranger, the Chevrolet uh, S10, things like that, real tiny trucks. Those are good for just being a Ute, throwing stuff in the bed and carrying it around. Then you have the half-ton pickup, the 1500s, the uh, the 150s, the 100s. They're good for livestock, lumber, little things, you know. If you're going to start hauling things like tractors, equipment, say you have a farm on your homestead and you want to buy a tractor. And that was actually some other questions I'll get to later. That was a big question there. there. Uh, they have the three-quarter-ton truck, the 250s, the 2500s, things like that. That's usually when you start getting into diesel. Then you have the one-ton truck, the the 350, and really on a homestead, you don't need anything bigger than the one-ton truck. Anything larger is not really necessary unless you, you're running your own lumber yard or something like that, or you're running a heavy equipment business out of your homestead. If you're just homesteading and you're using it to hold things around for the homestead, you don't really need larger than one ton. And uh, and it's all about you know choice, like uh, Nutria said about the you know being geared to a lower gearing, your you know your transmission, your buildup. Uh, I'm not going to get into that now. You can research gearing all day long on different gear ratios. Um, different gear ratios affect your speed, your top speed, your fuel economy, uh, how high your engine revs. So you want to find something that fits you the best. Um, I had a local, actually, a couple of weeks ago contact me. He had uh, bought at a, one of those Gov auctions a uh, old military Chevrolet pickup truck, and he wanted to know why the thing the truck wouldn't go faster than 50 miles an hour, and it screamed. He thought maybe there was a mechanical issue. 
and the way the military set these trucks up where they would run around on airfields. So you don't really need to go faster than 45 miles an hour. So the truck physically wouldn't go faster than 50. Uh, so now he has to either a sell the truck or b regear it. And you know, it's just things that you have to look into when you're buying a vehicle, research it, research the gear ratio, research the transmission, what model it is, see how good they are. I know a lot of Ford trucks, they, uh, use the Mazda transmission. We had the same Mazdas over in, uh, or Mazda, Mazda, whatever you guys want to call it. <laughs> Mazda. Some people call it Mazda, you know. I have a lot of uh, bogans over in Australia called Mazda. I call it Nissan. Some people call it Nissan. They look at me funny when I say certain things, you know. Uh, you know, and you just got to you gotta really just research. Uh, for example, um, my International Scout has a three-speed transmission. So you have shifting one, two, three, and you're done. There's no more gears. So over 50 miles an hour, the engine RPMs get pretty high because there's nowhere else for that engine power to go. You just, you know, um, so you really need to find the vehicle that best fits you. I would definitely recommend four wheel drive, something with utility capability. I wouldn't go out and buy the uh, Subaru Outback because, you know, there's no real utility to that. Hey, and now, they... I used to have a Subaru Outback. I uh, I did a lot of shit I shouldn't have with that thing. But uh, let me guess, break a control arm, perhaps? Uh, I did snap a rear control arm at one point, but it was uh, it was kind of a fucked thing that I hit, and um, it was something that I don't think anything would have gotten out of. Yeah. Um, and another thing, too. When it comes to buying older vehicles, some people like newer ones, some people like older ones. And this is just my personal opinion. I personally like a carbureted vehicle over electronic vehicles. Um, they're easier to service, in my opinion. Once you just know the general knowledge of a carburetor, it's easy to adjust for the different seasons of the year because carburetors do have to be adjusted between the winter months and the warmer summer months and different elevations in the mountains or in a coastal region. But uh, I personally like a carbureted engine because there's less things that go wrong. Um, there's less moving parts inside the engine, especially on the older ones. There's not a lot of uh, chains and belts and things like that that can go wrong. Not a lot of sensors, electrical wiring. So it all depends on your level of knowledge. And how much money you want to spend on a vehicle. And then how much money you want to put into maintaining it. A lot of the older Toyotas. Incredibly dependable transmission. Incredibly dependable truck. You know, incredibly dependable four-cylinder engines and six-cylinder engines and those things. Uh, personally, I'd like to find an older Toyota with a 22R engine in it. Um, in Australia, they were great. And they're for sale here across the United States. Uh, Ford, for example. One of their best motors. Back in the day, the uh, 300 inline six. Of course, we have the four liter Barra over in uh, Australia, which you guys don't get here. Amazing motor. Um, Ford had the 300 inline six, 300 cubic inches. The thing was a beast. Uh, we've had local junkyards up here drop glass inside of them to detonate the motor, and it'll still run on it. Um, Chevrolet, they have wonderful V8 engines. From what I hear, I've never owned one. But uh, you need to find what truck or ute or SUV best suits your purpose what things you're going to use it for. And if you have to buy multiple vehicles, you know, I wouldn't recommend if you're going to go a lot of off-road, a lot of mud trails in the woods, wouldn't you know, recommend taking your, your large pickup truck. I know a lot of, in America, there's a lot of four-door long pickup trucks that are usually like 21, 22 and a half feet long. I wouldn't recommend taking it out in the woods uh, as the wheelbase will cause your truck to, uh, you know, sink or get stuck because of the surface area is covering. Yeah. Things like... Uh, Nutria's full runner or uh, older like military Willys Jeep perhaps with a shorter wheelbase. 
will glide a lot better through the woods. So it's off to purpose. What are you going to use it for? Um, how reliable do you want the vehicle to be? What do you want the vehicle to do? What fuels do you want it to run on? It's all things you have to research personally. I'm not going to really get into all that because it's just too much. It's something that you as a consumer, if you're going to buy a vehicle, should be looking at anyway. Don't go blindly buying a vehicle. And uh, so I don't know if you guys have anything else to add to that. I'll say, uh, yeah, I got a uh, uh, Tundra, Toyota Tundra, four-door stuck, literally just on flat ground. I mean, that it was in winter time, and, you know, it, the ground is just mush here in the winter. But that, uh, you know, long wheelbase is not great for, you know, literally anything off-road. It's nice for towing, you know, if you needed to tow a, uh, you know, a trailer full of livestock, that'd be one thing. But man, that thing would, that'll sink right into the ground. Yeah. I, uh, when I got my Jeep, I had to get a four door cause, uh, you know, family, but, um, but the two doors, they are very cool. And, uh, the four door luckily is overall, my wheelbase is still fairly short. So, uh, you know, I have yet to get stuck in that thing and I've, I've only had it for a year, but I've already done a couple of pretty sketchy things in it, and it's been completely fine. And uh, any point that I thought that I was stuck, as soon as I put it in four low, I was not stuck. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of envious of the of the dudes that can run two door jeeps and you know live. Yeah, and uh, four wheel drive vehicles, sort of the, the, the uh, short wheelbase ones. I mean, like my International Scout has a wheelbase of 100 inches, uh, two doors, uh, three-speed transmission, has a you know four-wheel drive with low and high range, and uh, I'll take it anywhere. It always performs. Mine is a little special because mine was a ex-military vehicle. Mine was a United States Marine Corps that was actually used in uh, Vietnam. Oh, wow. And uh, it has a military suspension. Um, it's what called, what's called a closed-knuckle suspension. A lot of the older Toyotas use those. They're very, very rigid on off-roading capability. They don't use the typical ball joint or the kingpin of older vehicles. And newer vehicles, of course, use the ball joint. Uh, it's pretty rigid. Um, I will say, finding, I don't know if anybody knows about the Inter uh, International Harvester Company. They're old, and uh, they're not around anymore. Um, they went away in the 1980s, before my time. Um, so. Definitely old. You definitely want to find a vehicle brand that has parts availability. Don't go out and buy something strange because you saw somebody in a old car show have it. Um, a local, a lot of locals here have very, very old cars. Um, a lot of them are still so old that they are actually uh, a lot of your newer vehicles are on a 12 volt system, so your car battery is 12 volts. Their vehicles so old they are on a 6 volt system. So you know that raises questions of can I find parts? Do I how much do I have to fabricate? I know with my project I've taken on, the 1966 F350, which I now uh, use and drive, there was a lot of things I had to take from newer vehicles to make this one work. Certain switches that have gone bad from being, you know, 50, you know, 60 years old, where if I had to take it apart and take something off a new vehicle, I used parts off of a uh, 2001 Honda Odyssey for one of the uh, switches I had to replace. So you definitely don't want to buy too old of a vehicle. Um, I had a Two people with the vehicle questions who suggested, just like the people with the guns, suggested a certain model of vehicle. One guy had suggested a 1950 Willys pickup, 
I wouldn't really go on that. Uh, they don't really make a lot of power. They don't really go far. They don't really go fast. And uh, they just use more fuel than it's worth putting in them. Um, you want to get something probably from the 1960s forward. Personally, in my opinion, I wouldn't go with the 50s and the 40s. Unless you're buying like an old Jeep, they're pretty pretty stout. You could probably uh, run one of those around. I mean, in Australia, we had people run those old army Jeeps from World War II in the bush. And they'd, leave, you know, they'd leak the motor all out and they'd dump it back in. So, you know, it's it's all about uh, finding a good, reliable vehicle. You don't want something that's going to be a money pit. You don't want something you're not going to be able to work on. Personally, I wouldn't buy something too new to where if something goes bad or something breaks, it's going to be sitting for weeks and weeks while you're waiting on parts. And uh, at the end of the day, you need something to find, find something that works with your needs, you know? And, yeah. Uh, you know, so, when uh, uh, when I wrecked my, my GMC, it was a 2010. Um, it wasn't really bad, but the airbag went off. And uh, it was totaled because apparently they just discontinued those airbags. So that's something to consider, you know, when, like, who you're buying from. Toyota doesn't, like, discontinue parts. Um, and there's a lot of kind of backwards compatibility. You can use old parts in newer vehicles cause they just don't change that much. But, uh, like GMC, not the case, you know, they will just Chevy too. It's like every year it's a new thing. And if you don't, uh, basically if you don't stick with that, you know, if you don't keep buying their new stuff, then you're not going to be able to uh, keep repairing your vehicle. Oh yeah. You know, it's, uh, I've had a lot of locals here, um, They've been here longer than me. I've we've had I've encountered some people up here in their nineties up here in the mountains. And uh they still drive the vehicles they moved up there with, you know, one local who's uh he is a uh Lenape native, I believe that's how it's pronounced Lenape, Lenape, something like that. He's a native. He moved from Baltimore City after World War Two. Uh his father had taken him there and he was a veteran of the Korean War and he decided to move his family to the mountains and he bought a uh like I said, a, a nineteen uh, I believe it was a 50, 1950 Willys pickup. And uh, he still drives it this day. You know, some people hang on. Some people know how to work on them. Other people, they dump the car off in the junkyard. So it's all about a uh, definitely, for example, uh, for the airbag situation. Only one truck I own has an airbag. And uh, everything else, um, the for example, the 66 International Scout has no airbags, has no uh, seatbelts, has... No air conditioning. Um, the windshield wipers are powered off of vacuum from the fuel pumps. There's no electric there. And it's got heat. It does have that. You have heat. That's all you need. Yeah, as long as you have the heat, you know, as long as you don't freeze. You can always roll the window down. But, uh, you know, a lot of my other vehicles, they have uh, only one of them has an airbag. The rest are all uh, no airbag, no seatbelts. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't highly recommend running around no seatbelts, especially living in a very... Uh, high traffic area, I wouldn't exactly be uh, testing how much windshield you can go through, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would be definitely well, not testing that a one few, Yeah, a few years ago I was uh, entertaining the idea of importing one of the, uh, the Russian U.S.'s, like the, basically their equivalent to the Jeep. Yeah. And I found out that importing a vehicle isn't that expensive, but I guess that there are like certain importation laws I like, yeah, here in the United States, 25 years and older to be imported in. Yeah, see, I didn't know that when I started this endeavor. And um, I uh, I was looking around and then I was like, okay, it's really not that much to import a vehicle. It's like two grand. And then uh, 
I realized that nobody sells parts for that and to ship a part from, uh, you know, Russia at the time it was only during COVID, but now obviously with the war and everything and importation bans and yeah. all that stuff, um, you know, having like a six or seven or 10 or, you know, 15 pound thing that you need to ship like a starter or something, um, it would be expensive as hell and it would take forever. Well, then, I'll tell you what, uh, when I was in the forest service, there was a guy who, uh, bought a UAZ, uh, from a, he actually went, uh, city on the Chesapeake Bay. I believe it was Annapolis and bought, bought one and it ran off a of kerosene. Um, mm. so, you know, you couldn't just go to the regular petrol station or gas station and put a gasoline petrol in it. You had to go find someone who had kerosene and dump that in there. So, you know, you live and you learn, right? That's so funny. Stunk like hell too. Oh yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah, I sure. I bet you. Driving a big old candle around. And another vehicle. Uh, I don't know if I, I haven't said this already. Don't buy a Land Rover. Be smart. Be smarter than that. Don't buy a Land Rover. Uh, just be smart. Don't be stupid. Land what Rover's about a, a Land junk. Cruiser? Uh, now Land Cruiser. That that is a uh, vehicle of class. Uh, I know. Land, Land Cruiser in Australia. Uh, they put diesel engines in them. We uh, turn them into whole trucks. Uh, my buddy, before I left Australia, had his own uh, welding and equipment repair business. And he would tow a large military trailer behind his Land Cruiser with a diesel engine. Yeah. And it was an absolute machine. It ran like it was on rails. Uh, Toyota, ran, Toyota in general, in my opinion, I'm very impartial to Toyota. They make a very, very good vehicle with some there, exceptions. There, there's a pretty good saying that I've heard. Um and that's if you want to get to your destination, get a Land Rover. If you want to get to your destination and back, get a Toyota. If you don't want to get there at all, get a Jeep. Yeah, the uh, the Land Rover. When I was growing up, we had a lot of old British Land Rovers. Um, thing to be concerned about: uh, British Land Rovers up until about the nineteen eighties leaking. Yeah, they leak, but they also use their own pattern of bolts. They don't use the ones you use in America, the metric and the standard. They have their own. It's called the British standard. You need a whole other set of tools to work on those. Holy but, um, shit. Isn't that just yeah. great? Yeah, they're usually called Whitworth is what they usually call the bolt pattern. Or BSA is another word they call it. A lot of old British motorcycles are the same way. But in Australia, hmm. they used to say, if there's not oil under it, then there's no oil in it. Yeah, that, that's what I've heard too. If it's not leaking, then it's empty. Yeah, uh, Land Rovers are known for you shifting into a gear and you create another neutral. Uh, or, because they didn't synchronize, uh, not really going to get in the whole mechanical thing, but they didn't synchronize transmission, meaning that you had to double double clutch it to get it into the next gear safely without damaging anything. Which is funny, and, you have to double uh, clutch to not damage anything. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's older vehicles like my 1966 F-350 isn't synchronized so in order to keep grinding down on the gears i do double clutch but most of your modern vehicles are synchronized there's going to be not a lot of grinding as long as you know what you're doing you're not going to be grinding any gears but uh land cruiser and i don't really know what the market is for land cruisers here but i'm pretty sure they're all gasoline for the most part here but diesel ones they don't make a lot of power they make a lot of torque and especially with a working vehicle you want to look at the figure of torque not so much power uh but um yeah, Toyota, in my opinion, makes a pretty well-built vehicle. Uh, like I said, never drove a Tacoma, never owned a Tundra Tacoma, so I don't know about the pickup lineup here. Um, Tacoma's but I nice. Tacoma's very nice. Yeah. yeah, they're just small. Like if you if you're somebody that has kids, um, 
fitting a car seat in the Tacoma is already going to be rough. And then trying to fit two in there is, is not a thing. Like even for the, for the Wrangler, I was uh, pleasantly surprised that, that I can fit one in there. But if I need to fit two, it's going to be a little difficult, but I'll, I'll manage. Yeah. That was the reason why I bought my uh, F-150. I bought one with the, the cab is extended. So you have the little bench behind the driver and the uh, passenger seat because yeah. I had, uh, I have three kids now and, uh, can't really fit them all in a, uh, you know, can't really fit them all in the inside of an international scout or a Ford Ranger. So, you know, Damn, dude, you sound busy as hell. You got the 290 acre homestead. You still go out and train with, with, with the boys and you got three kids. Uh, yeah. Um, and I have, uh, tried to, like, I, like I said, I, my ultimate goal was to start a community and, uh, I've worked closer to that. I'm hoping soon to start a, uh, what, what they call, I personally don't like to call it this, but they call it a hub stead. Uh, basically, it's a large community that gets together to provide for themselves. And I've had numerous people come forward and ask me if they could buy part of the property and turn it into their own little hub stead in the West Virginia side. So I'm working out the details with them and uh, letting them have their own little community shaped up and teaching them how to you know, live on their own because um, they're tired of living in their town area because said earlier, certain cultural <laughs> effects certain things going on these days with America kind of becoming more liberalized for some folks that do not like that. You mean and black people retreat. worship and uh, gays everywhere? Uh, yeah, you know, the uh, banishing of Christ in this uh, Christian Western society. Yeah. You know, and uh, I guess, so moving on from the vehicles, uh, people ask about equipment, um, tractors. For example, I... I don't push a plow by hand. I uh, decided that uh, I'm gonna you let sure my... kangaroo and ox instead. Yeah, I didn't. I, I get the bull whip out too and make them work for it. And uh, so, in America, and especially in Australia, in Australia we've used a lot of American products over the years. Uh, growing up on a farm, of course, on a cattle farm, they had crops as well. And one of the big, once again, international harvester, they had a lineup of tractors called the Farm All Tractor. Um, anybody who lives in rural areas should know that well. And the farm all tractor usually came in a, a letter series. So the big, you know, A, B, C, D, uh, things like that. And they also had smaller ones like the Cub. Um, a tractor definitely does a lot of work. For example, I bought a, uh, a Ford tractor, uh, 19. And once again, these tractors, the, old, the tractors, the older they are, the better compared to vehicles. The older they are, the better they are. I bought a 19... 39 uh ford 8n tractor and uh it had a it's got somebody put hydraulics on it so it's a hydraulic pump that you can move things with and it's got an a-frame lift so when i was building my home by myself i was using this lift on this tractor to lift the logs for the beams for the roof so it was less work for me using the machine and at the same time i can take that off put a plow on i can plow i can put cultivators on it i can cultivate the crops so having a tractor, you can do so many things with a tractor. Uh, I now own uh, five tractors now. And, uh, you know, you can really get some work out of them. And you can make one of them do all the work for you. If you only want one, you can find the one that best fits you. Uh, tractors and equipment. I, I don't really own any equipment. I did buy a uh, skid steer. That's about all the equipment I really own. Love skid the sawmill. Um, yeah, skid steer is the ultimate uh, you know, some of us can't, all of us can't own a, a Komatsu bulldozer and a lot of welded panels on it. Um, it's highly frowned upon, especially when you start knocking over buildings with it. 
But, uh, <laughs> semantics. But, uh, you know, a lot of people asked about equipment, like ATVs, UTVs. Personally, in my opinion, uh, I'm not a big fan of the whole ATV, UTV. They're very expensive for no reason. I've seen people buy them for $29,000. You know, you can just buy a Jeep for that. You can get a you skid really steer for that. Yeah. You know, I bought my skid steer for $1,400. And all go. I had to do was replace a fuel pump on it and then got it running and ready to go. And that's where, you know, like I said, the trades come in. You're going to need the trades to maintain these pieces of equipment. One of the things I purchased that is, I guess, kind of in the realm of UTV, I, uh, before I had my International Scout, um, and I still had my Gallant, I was looking around. And once I bought the Scout, I found this man selling a, uh, it's called a Military Mule uh, M274. It's an, basically an American four-wheel drive platform. It's really what it is. It's a platform on wheels. And it's got a little two-cylinder engine. And, and all four wheels turn at the same time. So you can drive around with three wheels. Take a wheel off and drive around with three of them. And uh, it you can put about, I think, a quarter to half a ton on this uh, platform. And it has become a very utilitarian thing for me to load things up and take it around if I don't want to fire up one of the other vehicles. And uh, very easy to maintain. Um, they still sell parts for these things. Probably not the easiest to find. But uh, I would definitely would side against trying to go out and buying a side-by-side. Um, the UTVs, as they call them, they're very expensive. And, uh, they're, you know, they only have one use. That's, you know, going out on a trail. You can buy a Jeep and do the same thing, and the Jeep can go out on the highway too, you know? So equipment, um, you definitely want to find something that works for you and literally works for you. Don't Manual labor is just going to cause injury, and especially if you're on a homestead and not close to medical facilities, you don't want to be in that situation. Uh, I've been in that situation before. It's, you know, not the best thing you ever want to put yourself into. Um, <laughs> yeah, you Sounds just don't want to. I mean, heck, oh, yeah, I have, yeah. you don't I have wanna... a back injury right now, and it's debilitating. I don't want to imagine how bad it would be if I were out in the the homestead with like a broken leg. You know, Especially just laying there with... waiting for uh, help that's yeah. never going to come. Yeah. Like when I first started uh, building my house, when I first got to my homestead, I had my international scout. And literally everything that I brought with me was shoved in the back. I had a tent. Uh, I la- later made a uh, like a bushcraft teepee style thing and while I was building the house. And I lived out of that. Um, so <clears throat> if I got hurt, it was only me. I had nothing else. So if I injured myself, that was it. And especially with some homesteads, you're the provider for your family. If you hurt yourself, it's it's going to put a toll. Um, yeah. So, you know, yeah, you, uh, you sprain you. your ankle and the wife has to come out with the Martini Henry to put you out of out of your misery like a horse. Oh, she has to come out with the bull rifle. Martini Henry really pisses me off. Yeah, <laughs> that is a point, but, uh, though, uh, being the provider. I mean, I know for for you, Tyler, you know, you, your wife stays at home um, with your daughter and you go out and work. That's the same way I'm going to do it. Um, Graham, I don't know if that's the way you're doing it, but generally in this kind of community, that's what most guys are, are looking for. They want to, they want to homeschool. Yeah, they my want their my wife stays at home with the children. Yeah. Which is, it's great. That's the preferred way of doing it. But you know, you are talking about, you know, making your equipment work for you. You're the, the sole provider. If something happens to you. You get hurt. You're out of work. Uh, that's really bad, you know? So like there's kind of this temptation, especially I'm younger, early twenties. So I mean, uh, there's for me, it's kind of I'm still invincible, you know. Where I can I can do whatever, and then you know I hurt my back. You know, I can still work, but it's not fun. It's not easy to deal with that. Yeah. And it's like as you get older, injury potential for injury increases. 
And, you know, guys just need to be taking care of themselves, looking out for that and making sure you don't do stupid stuff that just can destroy your life, basically. Like join the military? Yeah, like join the military. Yeah, that, that, that destroyed my life right there. That was one of the uh, one of the decisions. Oh, I decided, oh, yeah, join the military. It'll be fun. And then you go to some tropical island where everyone wants to blow your head off, you know? And yeah, then well, they tell you, oh, at the end of the day, pick up that 80-pound bag and carry it because, you know, do it because we said so. <laughs> I'm not myself related. as a child, so then I couldn't join the military. Yeah. It's all part yeah, of my That's plan. not service related. You don't need that. Yeah, exactly. It's just called preventive maintenance. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> Breaking your back in the military before you have to break it out in the, the real world, you know? Well, he just broke his back, so, you know. Yeah. yeah maybe you should have joined the military, then at yeah. least you wouldn't have to put a down payment on a house. So true. Exactly. He'd be like, hey, look, we're going to put you to school for free, but too bad you're brain dead. Sorry. <laughs> that's what that's why we need to send you to school sorry buddy you have cte get over it well there's but, actually something with uh i don't know if they have anything similar in like the australian military with like benefits or anything but uh you know like with the military here you can get the gi bill once you do your four years or whatever um there's another thing too called uh excuse me oh man sleepy time there's another thing called vocational rehab where basically if you have any sort of disability rating, you can get unlimited free schooling um, past your GI Bill just because the the gist of it is like, hey, I've, I'm injured. I can no longer do the work I was doing before. It's your fault I'm injured. You have to pay for me to go to school to learn something else. So guys will get multiple master's degrees and stuff and just make money while they're already working and, and all that. So. Yeah. yeah, just just we something for like for guys listening. Programs, don't know about that stuff. Yeah, on uh, for example, uh, I was in Afghanistan. Uh, I was in Afghanistan for probably uh, eleven month tour. We didn't really go in there for long, and mostly made America do the heavy lifting for us. We used to stop on American bases and take their things. They had nice mm. shiny things. Uh but uh, I was in uh Kandahar and uh, Helmand. And in Helmand, when, you know, we went from Helmand to Kandahar with the British forces, uh, I actually received an injury, uh, uh, was shot, um, and it was unlucky because it was a ricochet, it came off a rock, and decided to put itself uh, in my uh, left ass cheek, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, when I got home, uh, they, they put me on three months back home, before put back in the in active service. And that we have a pensioners program where if you are you get you know certain amounts of disability, uh, you can buy homes, free schooling. We have a vocation where they will teach you a trade like uh, welding. For example, I chose welding, and uh, kind of picked up all the mechanics from the farm life, but I chose welding as one of my things. And uh, you know, probably should have chose engineering, probably been rolling in money, but you know, uh, you know those things. Like I said, you're gonna want to learn the trades, and that's gonna keep you fixing everything i mean i can't tell you how many times i have to fix something because it won't start or i have to weld something because it broke or i have to replace something because it's just worn out from age you know there's so many things you have to do and especially when i built my own home personally i like i said in the last podcast i lived like a barbarian you know i first built this house i had no plumbing no electricity and then woman i had to have it all so you have to learn these things you know she wanted yeah. electricity. She wanted plumbing. I had to do these things. So, I'm going to be living in know. the house without uh, most amenities for a little while until I'm going to, you know, get it set up and whatnot for her. But like, I don't need power. 
I'll be fine. I don't need internet. Yeah, for a while there, about uh, three years, I didn't have anything. And then I joined the forest service, and they gave me a little mobile hotspot thing and a little uh, Microsoft Surface, one of those little computers. Mm-hmm. But uh, other than that, I didn't have anything. Didn't really want anything, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> it's always been... But, uh, uh, I'll be honest. I mean, I so I I mean I got I met my now fiance um, back in Jan or no February sorry <laughs> February of 2022. Then went on we went on our first date uh, in like May, and then I asked her to marry me after two and a half months. You know, just Catholic things, and uh, but up until that point, basically, I was pretty much content on as soon as I graduate moving out somewhere by myself and just living like you said like a barbarian you know did not care uh, but you know woman um woman. And when I bought my yeah. house there was already electricity so uh nerd yeah, you know, you, from this one yeah I, I bought a nerd. piece of dirt you know I put my house there the man the myth the legend the construction worker um so I guess I'm going to try and wrap this up with these. There was there was a, a lot of questions per, pertaining to tools, so I'm just going to kind of put them all together. Um, a lot of people asked about what tools they need and what supplies they need to buy before they start a homestead and how much money they're going to need. Um, these questions, the money question wasn't asked enough. More people asked how to avoid taxes than how much money they needed. Um, concerning, but to each of their own. Uh, personally, if you're going to be buying a homestead with a structure already on it, you're probably going to need about $14,000 saved up, especially in this economy. And that might go up depending on what state you live in and your area. If you, and this is after the property's already purchased, you need to have $14,000 disposable income right after the property's purchased. Um, if you do not have a shelter and you're going to build your own and prefab it, building your own, you're probably going to need right around, give or take, $18,000 disposable after the property is purchased or financed to have you're going to do it if you're going to go di with a prefab instead of diy i suggest about thirty six thousand dollars disposable income like i said i personally don't recommend going prefab um go diy you build it yourself you'll appreciate it more it'll last longer uh for tools and supplies uh general automotive tools working on your own vehicle buy some easily warrantyable at your local auto parts store uh, don't go out and buy the big brands. Um, I know in Australia, you guys have in America, tools like uh, Snap-on, um, things like that, automotive tools. Too expensive for the amount of times you're going to use it. Wouldn't buy it. Wouldn't recommend buying it. Buy a cheap set of sockets and wrenches and ratchets, hammers, things like that, pliers, screwdrivers. I could keep some of that around. I don't know the automotive that tools like screwdrivers, they can cross over to your regular tools too. Yeah, I don't know that I've actually paid any money for any of the tools that I have. I just acquire, um, you know, socket sets, and I've got like probably a million ten millimeter sockets. You know, that's just yeah. The way and I mean, goes. another thing too is, guys, uh, another question that was asked that I actually skipped over, and this ties into this too. You know, people wanted to see how much money they could save putting furnishings in the house. Same thing with these sockets and these tools. Go to yard sales. Go to estate sales. Go to refuse sites. What people throw away, you could still use. Yeah. I mean, when I first started out, I traveled. I was like a gypsy. I went from yard sale to yard sale. Like, oh, this old man died. Well, let me take his tools. Oh, well, they're just selling it for nothing. Let me take that. Um, my sink in my house, I pulled from a local refuge site. Somebody had thrown it away. All it needed was to be 
uh, welded fixed a crack in it. Uh, my, my, I had a, a galvanized wash bin in my tub. Found that. Somebody had thrown it away. It was perfectly good. Reused it. There's a lot of things people throw away you can reuse. Um, don't be the guy who's going to buy it new. You know, a lot of my tools are used. Um, you know, you, just because somebody else stopped using it doesn't mean they're, they're bad. Especially hand tools. They virtually never go bad until you break them. I mean, uh, but like I, I said, you know. Oh. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, you can go ahead, Nutria. I was just going to say, I, I had a pair of needle nose pliers, which I can't find them right now, but they were my granddad's. Uh, probably 60 years old and literally just as good as new. They still work. They're oh, yeah. just the way I mean, that most tools are. You know, the, the old saying is take care of your tools that take care of you. Um, yeah. You know? And like I said, you definitely want to buy, and a lot of your American tools these days, no matter what the brand is, they're mostly made in China. That's anywhere in the world. It's not just America. You know, China's like the sweatshop of the world now. Um, but buy something you can easily warranty. If you break it, you want to be able to get another one. Buy it with a lifetime warranty. Um, you can always replace the tool. And like yep. I said, you want to buy an automotive, some automotive tools, buy some sockets, some wrenches, a couple hammers, screwdrivers, pry bars, things like that. Things you're going to be using when working on a car. Um, you don't really have to get too in-depth. If you buy a new vehicle with a computer, buy like a little code reader, one of those little scanners, in case your check engine light comes on, something like that. Um, homesteading, you want to, for automotive, you want to bring some oils with you, coolant, water, whatever you, you use in the vehicles, of whatever your owner's manual recommends, bring some of that out with you. Um, if you're going to be building your own home, you need to, of course, get the tools to build your own home. Saws, whether it be power, hand, you know, it's up to you. But some saws, axes, uh, if you're going to be cutting a lot of trees, chainsaws, you know, uh, mauls, wedges, things like that. You know, if you're going to be doing a lot of woodwork, you're going to be doing hewn logs, you're going to need the various types of axes. Maybe you're going to be peeling bark, you're going to need the various types of tools for that. Draw so you really get the tools set out for what you really need to do. You know, don't be out there just buying those little cheap gimmicks where this is the one socket that fits them all. You're going to have a lot of tees if you buy one of those. I don't understand why anyone doesn't just, you know, only use a crescent wrench and channel locks because a crescent wrench can uh, double as a hammer and then your your channel locks can basically be the ultimate adjustable. And Well, look, I'll tell you, when I bought when I bought my 1966 International Scout, when I arrived at the guy's place, he said it's been sitting for 15 years and it won't run. I said, okay. I started it. Fixed it up with a Leatherman and left his property. Sounds so, about right. And he was very upset that it's at 15 years and I used a Leatherman to fix it and a couple pieces of fuel line I cut and brought with me. And, uh, you know, it's certain things where you can, you know, one tool can be crossed over, you know, you have a hammer. You can use a hammer on an automotive application. You can use it for driving nails. You have a pair of pliers. You can use it repairing things around the house. You can use it for your car. Same with the screwdriver. Um, so just buy the tools you're going to need for your vehicle or for your uh, your house if you're going to build it or building anything, really. Buy the tools you know you're going to need. I wouldn't go out and buy, like, specialty automotive tools. You know, if you get that far, and most likely your vehicle's pretty much fucked. Don't go out <laughs> and buy, like, a, oh, I'm going to go out and buy the $3,000 scan tool and the, the $20,000 air conditioning machine and, you know. Another thing people had asked when they asked about the vehicles was how to change your own tires. Um, a lot of people know how to take it off and put it back on. Not a lot of people know 
how to take it off the rim and put a new one on. Um, and you can do that on right outside in the woods as long as you have the necessary tools. Something to break the bead, something to remove the tile off the rim, put the new one on. Um, so, you know, buy those too. I mean, I've, I've done my own tires right here on the homestead in the, uh, right there in the middle of the field. You know, you don't need a concrete floor and a lift to do things. Uh, definitely buy some jack stands and a floor jack for your, vi uh, your vehicles. Um, you know, you want to have a, some chains, some pulleys, some rope for dealing with the logs when you build a house, if you're going to DIY it. So you definitely just want to map out what you're going to be doing on the homestead, and that will tell you what tools you're going to need, and then go out from there. If you're going to do a lot of farm work, buy, you know, some hoes. Uh, if you're going to be doing a lot of digging, some shovels, a mattock, a pickaxe, something like that, you, know, you need to buy what you're going to need for whatever occasion you're using it for. Um, and other than that, I think there was about, oh, I had a question about archery, too, about making your own bow. It's pretty simple. That little. Yeah, oh, yeah, atlatl. Throw a little dot into somebody's side. You know? I didn't say use an atlatl for all the fun. That's your, <laughs> that's your game. That's your... Yeah, you just you climb up in a tree and you just get him right in the back of the neck. I'm going to be like little, David. Scalp him, hang it up, make a like little David. effigy of him. <laughs> use a sling, just smack people in the face. Exactly. Except no slings now are unleaded gasoline and styrofoam. Yep. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean that's that's about all I had for the questions. A lot of it, uh, you know, is a lot about hunting, fishing, things like that, firearms. Um, somebody asked how I hunt my large amount of land, and I mean, I mean, I guess, I guess it's pretty simple. I mean, I just kind of hunt it. You just got to kind of track where the animals go. Um, I wouldn't personally recommend buying 290 eggs if you ain't got the cash for it because you're gonna put yourself in a lot of debt. So I wouldn't personally recommend doing that move. Uh, Somebody asked, I think I answered this in the last question, how many acres do you need to start? And then, like I said, that all depends on, you know, how many people you're going to have. Uh, 20, 40 acres is usually good for a four to six person family. Very good for a four to six person family. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's about, about it. I did a couple, I got a couple, like, more joke questions. Uh, one of them was, do I wrestle crocodiles? Yes. Uh, the answer is definitely yes. I mean, yes. just like Florida man, I'm going to wrestle a crocodile just like any other human being wants to. Uh, the primal fury. Um, have I seen cryptids? That was one question. Um, yeah, you had a Bigfoot story, didn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So might as well share that with the general public. Oh, heck so, yeah. Uh, so about, um, I guess it was about January. It was right after I had this whole logging incident going down. I had uh, promised a local, the same one with his will, the Willie's pickup. He's 94 years old. He's a Lenape native. And he moved to the area in the late 50s, I believe 56, 55, something like that. Right after he got out of the army from the Korean War when he was wounded. He moved up here, created his home, uh, had his first child in 1957. He is at the, uh, I believe... He is a two-great-grandfather, I believe, a great-grandfather, something like that. Yeah, he's a two-great-grandfather. So he was born in 1929. He's uh, quite the age now. And uh, this story takes place in about uh, 19... I want to say 83. So in that time, uh, where I live now, didn't have a highway running to it. It was a series of back roads and two-lane roads that were always washed out. 
And in the late 70s, early 80s, the state had decided they wanted to run a major highway to the Appalachian Mountains here in the state of Maryland. And one of the obstacles to that was at the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains of Maryland, there was a large um, mountain range called Sidling Hill. It stretches from Maryland to Pennsylvania. It's very large, very tall. And the only way to go through it was to dynamite it. So uh, for a couple months, they started bringing in road crews and a lot of it. traffic was in the area. And uh, Sidling Hill actually stops about, about, I don't know, 10 miles, 15 miles from my property. And his property is right on Sidling Hill. So they started dynamiting in about uh, December of 1983. And one night, right after Christmas, uh, I believe he said December 27th, 1983, his wife woke him up in the middle of the night and said she heard a loud howling noise. He chalked it up As to the fact does. that she was just overreacting to something like a coyote. We have coyotes up here, and she and we have mountain lions, and you know they they scream pretty loud at nighttime. Sounds like a woman being murdered, and uh, so he you know just told her to go back to sleep. And uh, the next night, December twenty eighth, he would woke up not to hear any noises, but nature's call. He says around like probably about three, half past three in the morning. And of course they had an outhouse. So he goes outside to relieve himself. And it's a uh, full moon with a little bit of overcast because they're calling for a snowstorm. Well, when the clouds would disappear, he could see down to this creek. Uh, it's a large creek that ends up in like a small pond or small lake maybe is what you call it. It's pretty deep. He said uh, direct center of it is probably about six feet, six and a half feet deep. And it drops off pretty quick from about three to five feet. And then it gets six feet deep, six and a half feet deep. He gets out of the outhouse. And he grabs, he had a, one of those little Coleman gas lanterns. And he just so happened to, out of the corner of his eye, see something down at the lake. So he was straining his eyes, couldn't see well. He figured, you know, maybe somebody was, you know, on his property, maybe just seeing things. So he grabs a pair of binoculars, goes back out, barely sees a figure in his pond, his lake. So he thinks maybe it's one of the construction workers that got lost in the middle of the night. Maybe they were drunk, walking around. He was going to go assist this person. He didn't have the mentality of somebody trying to steal my things. So he gets down there, and he hears a, uh, a grunting noise about maybe 75 yards from the edge of the pond. So he thinks maybe there's a bear. Maybe this man was trying to get away from a bear and went into the water. Well, the water's cold. I mean, it's December. It's frigid. So he figures this man's in a lot of trouble. It's cold. Maybe he's disoriented. So he goes back, grabs his rifle. And runs back down there to help this man. He thinks there's a bear loose. He's hearing this grunting noise. He's never heard it before, but he thinks it's probably a bear. He gets about 50 yards towards the uh, pond, and he hears the water thrashing. So he thinks maybe this man is, you know, uh, drowning. You know, he's going to get down and try and save this guy. 40 yards from the pond, he hears a, uh, a groan that stopped him in his tracks. He had never heard that before. It, he said he could feel it in his chest. That's how loud it was, so deep in baritone. And he stopped, and he started just staring at the figure in the water and realized it wasn't thrashing about like he thought it was. It was just slowly moving in the water. And he said it was right around the five-foot, six-foot zone, and its breast was fully above the waterline. So its breast was fully exposed all up to the head, wide shoulders. And he figured, man, this must be really one tall dude. So he gets 30 yards in, and he hears a, a chipping noise. Like a, like a bird chirping. Well, it's three, you know, half past three, almost four o'clock in the morning. Usually doesn't hear birds chirping like that. So he stops and he looks at it and he thinks, man, this man might be one of those, you know, might be a druggie. You never know. 
coming in from the, the hallway crews. And then he says that the figures are getting out of the water. So he sits there and he watches it. And he said that on the, and I've seen his pond in person where he, he showed me exactly where he saw, uh, his first Sasquatch sighting. Um, on the slope of this pond, it's about a 30 degree incline. And he said the figure got out of the water and he saw the widest set of shoulders and back he's ever seen in his life. He said he probably saw about a six, maybe six foot seven to seven foot figure. And he said with long strides, it walked right up the slope and into the woods up a 30 degree slope. I mean, um, I've seen it and you have to be almost in all fours to get up that slope without uh, some sort of walking aid. So he just kind of baffled by it, decides well, whoever it was, you know, everything was quiet. There was no more grunting noises, no more groaning, no more anything. He figured, okay, maybe he's just seeing things. It's dark outside. Maybe it was just a man, maybe, you know, whatever. Just play it off, go back home, get back to sleep. Um, everything's quiet. Snowstorm rolls through, pretty big snowstorm. And I forgot to add that during these this time, he heard the howling noise and saw this figure in his pond. They had been dynamiting Sidling Hill. They'd been blowing chunks of the mountain out. So wildlife was pretty stirred up in the area. Things that had been living there peacefully are now getting chased away by dynamite. Uh, January 6th, him and his son go out to go out deer hunting. Uh, they needed game. They were low on uh, meat, so they decided to go game hunting. They walk down the hill from their Sidling Hill on their property. They go downhill towards uh, what we call 15 Mile Creek. Runs through his property and mine. And usually deer go by the creek to drink the water and you can hunt them there. He gets down into an open area where the, the pines kind of give way to an open plateau with a ridge line above it. And as he walks out into this open area, he's looking for deer. He's got his binoculars on. His son's, you know, over there just sitting on a stump. His son was kind of young at the time, probably about his uh, early 20s, I guess. He hears a loud whacking noise, like somebody's hitting something against a tree. And, uh, like someone's taking a branch and smacking it against a tree, but it's a lot louder than that. So he's thinking, you know, maybe there's a logger nearby, maybe there's construction workers nearby, maybe they're trying to get firewood, you know, in his eyes, his property, but what's one tree? So the more he moves, the louder it gets. And uh, downhill from them, in the snow, they see a little something in the snow, and they think maybe an animal had died in the snow. So they go over there to inspect it. Because, you know, up here, when we get snowstorms, it's not uncommon to find dead deer where they just died in the cold. You know, we've had snow pretty bad where they just die. You know, and you'll find that uh, the uh, carcasses everywhere, the carrion everywhere. And uh, so they get up to it, and it wasn't a deer, it was a, it was a hog. It was a domesticated hog that was completely ripped apart. Not something a bear would do. And uh, it kind of set them back. And as soon as it got on top of this hog, the, the thwapping of that, the whacking of that tree branch on that tree, the only noise he could come up to be that got louder and louder and faster at that point they had uh, looked up they were looking for the noise and they looked up on a tree line and on that ridge they saw a brown haired seven foot creature uh, they immediately got the hell out of there neither of them he said neither of them talked about it for the rest of the week they didn't tell the wife about it they said they just didn't see any deer that day and they're going to try again another day and it, he said, you know, he you know, fought communist Chinese forces in Korea where they were, yeah, I numbered you 10 to 1, and he had never been as frightened as that in his life. Um, so he says the next time he sees it, 
uh, is uh, right around uh, about 14th of January to go out hunting again. This time they get an animal. It's getting late at night. Uh, around here, 5 o'clock, it's pretty dark. Moon's out. And uh, all your creatures are going away and the nighttime creatures are coming out. And uh, kill a deer. They were letting it hang. They uh, were gutting it. They were cleaning it out in the field. And uh, they heard a loud howling noise. They'd never heard it before. And followed by a lot of groaning and grunting. And uh, followed, they would heard a bunch of chirping noises. And then they heard uh, the trees like moving. You know, something was pushing on the trees, a loud crunching of leaves, breaking sticks. Something was moving towards them, so they figured, okay, maybe it's a bear. Maybe it's a mountain lion that smells the meat. It's going to investigate. So they, they took their time. They had guns. Usually animals stay away from you. Only it kept getting closer and closer. So they decided, let's pack up and let's get the hell out of here. As they were leaving, about 70 yards behind them, they saw it on the tree line. And, uh... They um, started moving quick. They knew this creature was here again. And uh, they didn't look back behind them. And they kept running back to the cabin. The next day, they had gone back to the site. And they had seen that only 200 yards away from the cabin, the footprints had stopped. It followed them that far towards the cabin. They never even knew because they were running. They weren't paying attention. And he said, you didn't even hear it following them. And that's what's frightened him the most. This <laughs> so large of a creature, you didn't hear it when it didn't want you to hear it. It frightened the living shit out of him. Uh, he didn't see it again until February. In February, he had noticed that uh, they had been putting uh, garlic outside to dry it. And when we put the garlic outside, it would disappear. Any food they stored outside, because in the wintertime, and I do it as well, wintertime is like a natural freezer. You put things outside, up in the air, on stilts, typically away from bears. The food kept going missing. They'd put it outside. It would go missing in the middle of the night. So uh, they decided they're going to they think it's this creature. They don't know what it exactly is. I mean, in, in their time, they didn't exactly know what a Bigfoot was. They had never seen the tapes from the 1960s and things like that. They didn't know what it was. And in his native culture, there was no such thing as the Bigfoot. And uh, so they figured, okay, it's probably some creature that probably we've never seen before. It could be a bear. You know, they, they, there was a lot of things going through their minds. And uh, they even thought it was a, a man messing with them, dressed in a costume, messing with them. So they were going to put an end to it. So they got their guns, him and his son. They waited it around 1 o'clock in the morning, and they saw it come out of the wood line towards the cabin. And uh, they proceeded to climb this stilt and take the food. They had, uh, I believe he said it was chicken in a pot, and they took the chicken right out of the pot. And ran with it. They fired at it. Didn't hit it. Didn't draw blood. Um, the next day, a neighbor had come by asking if they had seen this hog. It's been missing for a month and they couldn't find it. Well, it's because this thing had stolen the livestock. It had killed it. Uh, later, in about the... You know, once the dynamiting stopped, they didn't see the creature anymore. And according to him, he has never seen it. He says he has heard it over the years. I have never personally heard it or seen it. But uh, once the dynamiting stopped, he believes the dynamite is what drove the this what he now knows as a Sasquatch to his best description. He believes the dynamiting is what drove this creature out of uh, hiding because they were dynamiting through a mountain, which it was remote, a remote mountain at the time in the 80s. No one lived there. You know, the town I live in now had a population of about 30 back in the 1980s, so no one would have came across it. 
So he believes the dynamiting is what forced the animal out. And uh, he believes, to this day, it was a Sasquatch Bigfoot's head of his son. And they they said throughout the 1980s they could hear it uh, making bird chirping noises, communicating with what they believed was another one. They actually, in the 90s, a group had actually come by and documented, uh, documented it. Uh, I believe, he said, if you go on the internet, there's a documented sighting, probably... Well, it's on his property, but if you, it's like a Google map, and it shows the documented sightings about the United States. It's now a documented sighting. And, uh, I mean, everybody, you know, some people doubt the existence of such creatures. I've personally never seen one, but I'm not going to doubt somebody else's encounter. If they saw it, and they have other people with them saying they saw it. You know, if it's one person you know does a lot of meth, does a lot of cocaine, you're going to realize, ah, yeah, they're just taking the piss. But uh, when you have somebody who has never seen a creature like this in their life, I mean, they're living in a remote Appalachian town, was little more than a logging village till the 1990s, early 2000s. Uh, Native American who in their culture had no uh, Bigfoot Sasquatch to see something like this. And, uh, you know, in his culture, there's more of like the Wendigo, the cannibal, than it is the Sasquatch. So to see something like this, you can't really think that he fabricated this with an intelligent mind because he just didn't well, he had no concept of yeah. it. Yeah, there was no concept of the Sasquatch, you know. Now, I can understand if he was from the Pacific Northwest and he moved here, you know, I can understand that here in Australia we have what they call the Les. That's just a, a made up fucking thing. You know, we don't have actually a Les in Australia. There's The only thing we have in Australia is spiders that will bite you and kill you in a few seconds. Um you know, when he told oh, me the story, I took it to account. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we have uh, the world's king of the hill battle royale in Australia. It's a fight to the fittest. Um, God's strongest warriors with his strongest battles. Um, but you know, when he told me the story, I wasn't gonna. I'm not gonna discredit him. Uh, some people believe, some people do not. Personally, I've never seen one, but I'm you know, I'm open to you know, creatures that we haven't found before. Scientists find creatures they thought previously extinct all the time. So uh, I'm not going to say that he didn't see it. I've never seen it, never heard it, but it doesn't mean it's not out there. And you know, Especially when he had two people, you know, him and his son, both seeing it, both frightened for their life, uh, both equally feeling they were in danger in the presence of this creature, you know. And some people, you know, if you look at uh, Pacific Northwest, uh, Northwest with the Haida people, in British Columbia, they say they've had good encounters with them. You know, they're well-respected. And some people have had violent encounters with them. Uh, they were just generally scared with their lives. So they didn't know what the hell they were up against. And, uh... Like, Port I don't know, you, just, you, you don't meet people all the time who have a first-hand account. I guess you always see them on, like, television shows and the, uh... The YouTube videos. You never really meet somebody with a first-hand account. That's the first time I've ever met somebody with a first-hand account. You know, um... Here's my theory. It's not. I get, um, my buddy Paul told it to me, and uh, very, very profound, actually. Um, you know, they can never really get a uh, a good image of Bigfoot. You know, it's always, it's always pretty low quality. So what he theorized, um, and I agree with, is that Bigfoot is actually just blurry. He's just Bigfoot's just blurry. That's it. <laughs> he's just a blurry boy he's low res doesn't he doesn't pay premium subscriptions 
<laughs> yeah, Big, Bigfoot's still on that 144p life. Yeah, yeah he's, uh, he's still living eight bit over there. That's funny, but yeah, I uh, yeah, no, I I think that one of the things that is uh, you know, somebody who has spent a lot of time out in the woods and stuff, you can tell because they generally don't discount things as quickly as somebody who, uh, you know, it's kind of like a bell curve, right? Like you have the low end and the high end that will listen to what you're saying and think about it and, or, or, you know, just take it for face value and believe it. And then you have, you know, the, the main portion of the bell curve where there's like, Oh, it's I don't believe in any of yeah, that's not real. It could never be it's real. Like, yeah. It's like, you you know, you you have the lower IQ people that are just kind of gullible and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, that makes sense. And they're, sure. they're generally more like superstitious and, and scared of stuff like that. And then you have the higher IQ people that realize that every day you just realize that there's more that you don't know. And yeah. to really take in something like that, where like you said, he's not, uh, you know, he's not anybody who's doing anything crazy. He's fairly well respected all around you can tell by the way he tells the story that he was genuinely scared you know all this stuff he has no reason to make it up it's like why would you not believe that he saw what he saw right like what what he saw is that what the what the actual thing is might be debatable but what he saw is like that's it right so yeah exactly but, but no, yeah man I, I uh i appreciate you coming back on and um you know, if you got a lot more questions than a hundred percent, we can make a third one. Or if you just want to come back on, you're always welcome. It's fun. Yeah, you know, I enjoyed it. Like I said, I don't have Instagram, so I I have a a friend of mine who does follow the Longhouse page, and he usually takes the uh, questions for me. So uh, I guess if anybody has any more questions that weren't answered now, just put them on the Instagram page, and we'll get answers to them. Yeah, it's awesome. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. You know, it was really, it was good. I like. I just want to say it was good listening to the first one you, that you did. But you know, you're obviously a very knowledgeable guy, and it's uh, nice talking to you. Nice getting to talk to you. Yeah, yeah nice talking to you too, Nutri. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I'll yeah, just never really talked to much in American South before. You know, besides a few, you know, visitors from Virginia and Carolinas, never really. Many of them are from Mississippi. Yeah, it's yeah, uh, keep, keep it that way. <laughs> it's yeah. Yeah, it's a different different world down here. It is quite strange, but I like it. Yeah. I like the sip. The sip. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, one of my alarming things was I always was taught, you know, Mason Dixon line is divided between the north and the south. However, culturally, Maryland in most people's eyes isn't a part of the south, yeah. and some people say it is. You know, it's um yeah like Civil War, um, yeah. Oh, kind yeah. of stuff, you know. It's like a political thing. Yeah. But yeah. Still. I've uh, yeah. There's a little. There's some weird things, you know. For like West Virginia, where I own property, historically the state left Virginia because they want to stay with the Union. But most people there fly a Confederate flag, so you know it's yeah, yeah you know, <laughs> whatever, you know. Based. Some of my great grandfather's rolling around in the grave right now doing little three sixty spins. Yeah. I mean, funny. I guess they just watch Dukes of Hazard or something, you know. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of moonshiners up that way, so that would make sense, actually. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. There's a lot of moonshiners up here. I've drank some things that have uh, turned my insides out. It's yeah. like that White Lightning song. Yeah, White Lightning. Yeah, exactly. George Jones. Yep. All right. <laughs> well, also, uh, thanks for that Bigfoot story too. That was that was yeah, pretty nice. Problem, you know? That was cool. 
Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm off to sleep. Same. I'm, I'm tired, yeah. boy. And uh, well, I actually do need to prepare. Uh, pray for me because we're supposed to get hit with some really bad weather tonight. So that's the other great thing about the American South. Um, constant, terrible weather. But you need to get a metal roof. Uh, yeah, I might actually just pick up the whole building, but you know, stop building concrete bunkers, pillboxes. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> concrete roof. Exactly. exactly. Well, see ground. if you do the concrete roof; it's not going to rust. Um, yeah. And then it's so damn heavy on top that your house can't blow away. Plus, no one can loot you if the whole house comes in and crushes everything. It's all equally destroyed. Exactly. And there you go. It's like self-destruct no buttons. No the one can take with yours so when it's all destroyed. Yeah. Well, I can't have it. You can't have it. Well, I can't have it. You <laughs> can't have it. Yeah. Nuclear option. Especially when the alphabets roll up. Yep. <laughs> <laughs>